Welcome to Midnight Flicks, a podcast dedicated to movies relegated to a late night purgatory. You are listening to our special Flicktober series, uh, which is being used to cover the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. Tonight, we are doing three and four Dream Warriors and Dream Master. Um, Super excited. Adam, uh, we did not mention this, but... Uh, you are live in my home studio. We're here together, friend. Yeah. And, you know, of course, we we have to, you know, mention somewhat the uh, the the trials and tribulation that got us to this point. It hasn't worked out quite uh, ideally, but nonetheless, we're here again. Um, we are in each other's presence to. uh make this a very special occasion uh uh in more ways than one which we'll get to later but yes the fact that we're both here in the same room after doing this for a year and almost a year and a half i believe yeah the year and first in person cue the cue the little ditty about pat and adam <laughs> <laughs> yep we're uh we're sucking on so many chili dogs right now adam's here back in indiana sucking on chili dogs over by the tasty freeze or whatever <laughs> dumb fucking bullshit um but yeah uh, no it's it's great to to have you in my bedroom 
<laughs> yes, and it's great to have you in my guest room right now. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I'm technically uh, recording from your room that you're staying in and you're recording from my bedroom uh so even though we're still together uh it feels no different for us because you're still just a um, on my video screen and not sitting across from me which is that's fine i can i can feel your presence well we had to do this due to technical limitations in case anybody's wondering why are you in the same room well we're you know we're a real diy operation here so we had to improvise sometimes but you know i mean this is kind of in certain ways it's 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 like a it's like a wife life swap it you're is like, a, it's a wife swap you we're uh yeah you're like you're, living in you're, you're living in my shoes right now and you're cuckolding holding me in my bedroom <laughs> great as I, I think that's a fair of your exchange and kids <laughs> that's nice to think about i'm just okay. here with like your deodorant and towel and my dog and you have my wife <laughs> So that's fair. fair take my wife, please. Take my wife, sleaze. What is that fucking? <laughs> take my wife, you sleaze bag. <laughs> anyway, all right. Um, Dream Warriors, which is uh, first up on the docket here, mm-hmm. uh, released in '87, directed by Chuck Russell, who had a fucking run here. Yeah. Because after this, he followed this up with the '88 Blob remake, uh, which I don't know about you, I fucking love. Um, oh, oh yeah! It's big a Blob fan. I love that remake. It's so yeah, good. It's a fantastic remake. And then he would just go on to do the Mask in the '90s, followed by Eraser, which is a low-key great Schwarzenegger vehicle that I did not see until this year. I'd never seen Eraser before. Um, I don't believe I've seen it all the way through either. So. It's got the most, the iconic scene from a racer is the fucking, they're at the Brooklyn Zoo and the, all the alligators get out of their, get out of their pen and there's CGI alligators getting shot by Arnold Schwarzenegger and he says something to the effect of like, now your luggage. So that's, that's fun. Um, but yeah, it, I, you know, I think three is, is held in high regard amongst most Nightmare on Elm Street fans, um, you know, and it was it it grossed uh, forty five million near damn near uh, on a budget of four million. So I mean, talk about printing money. And this is something we kind of talked about in the first one, but about how horror saved New Line. But New Line is obviously notoriously called the house that that Freddy built for a fucking reason because these movies did so well even the quote-unquote bad ones which this isn't one of them but the later ones still did well yeah totally um and did you want to give our audience a little bit of a synopsis of what takes place in this particular nightmare on elm street installment so with three we kind of get a real uh, a horror breakfast club uh together here um of (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> miscreants and sleeping misfits in a uh, in a an experimental um, psych ward of sorts for children who suffer from these kind of psychotic delusions. Um, and Heather Lingenkamp uh, comes back and reprises her role as Nancy. Um, and glorious she, return, the glorious return, and and um, she's in the. 
in the role of, of mentoring these kids and seeing them through something that she had already gone through. So basically this serves as a direct sequel to one and you could almost pretend that two never happened and you would be no worse for wear. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, I would say that, you know, to kind of, um, preface a little bit what we're going to get to into with four the whole hodgepodge breakfast club teen sort of theme is continued uh to uh it's almost like wacky extent with four but definitely takes place in this as well that's good to point out um these two because of the way we're doing this we're just doing two movies at a time these two uh, align nicely because they are the most cohesive in terms of a one two movie in this series. We you don't really get two movies back to back again in this series that are this connected. So three and four, for all intents and purposes, are almost one continuous uh, movie Four being the last vestiges of the good that three kind of had to offer, if that makes any sense. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. But four, I'm excited to talk about, too, because Rennie Harlan is a Hall of Fame director on this show and has been mm-hmm. long uh, lauded uh, specifically by me, but is for by you as well. Um, but in the form of I chose Cliffhanger in season one and I chose Deep Blue Sea in season two because I, I stand for fucking Rennie Harlan all day on all night. So um it it'll be it's glad to have him back <laughs> back on the pot. <laughs> yeah, and I will say, you know, without argument, my first experience with Rennie Harlan was this movie and you know, I had seen Cliffhanger. I'd never seen Deep Blue Sea. So, you know, and I didn't even really know that Rennie Harlan did for and with us subsequently watching those other two movies and becoming more acquainted with them, it made me appreciate him as a director even more as just being this just complete, like bombastic batshit director. <laughs> this rogue dick swinging our Finnish bad boy. He's the Finnish stone cold Steve Austin. Like he's uh cue the bl- gr- the glass breaking and him just smashing beer cans and pouring them over his head and ready to shoot. Um, that's, that's his directorial style in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. And who might I add, you know, we've had off the mic discussions about has a wife that looks like she is uh, 15 years old. So, <laughs> yes, <laughs> which, a, he, um, in Finland is just called your second marriage. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, he likes them young, like a lot of old rich guys. So that's true. Um, <laughs> OK, well, uh Without any further uh, ado, do we want to get into the good, bad, and questionable of Dream Warriors? Yeah, let's do it. with the good why don't you rattle some off um i think we got another bloated good section for this one 
Oh, absolutely. So, you know, let me emphasize that of the series, this installment is my second favorite. And incidentally, it was probably, to my knowledge, the first one I saw. So I saw three before I saw any of the others. I backtracked, you know, later on. So it particularly has nostalgia for me. Um, And as we've talked before, the thing with this movie is this is where we get the most chatty Freddy to date. This is where the Freddy that the whole world came to know and love really came into his own became the guy with the jokes and the zingers and, you know, was like, you know, very like devilishly menacing with his like humor. Uh, a lot of black gallows humor got introduced with this uh, more predominantly. So, you know, when you're a, a kid and you're at this point, you're getting into uh, horror movies and you wanted to impress your buds, you know, you learned the slick Freddy one-liners <laughs> that you could, you know, rattle oh, off yeah. amongst, you know, each other. So, I mean, without getting into the specifics, which we will soon, that's a really big good for me is, you know, it's it's the, the fun Freddy. Here's the really fun Freddy that we get with this installment. And kind of like, you know, that takes off with, you know, subsequent... Uh, uh, sequels in the in the franchise. So Fun Freddy, right off the top, we get Fun Freddy, and we'll of course bang out some quotes as we talk. Um, so that's a real good f- for me. Um, right and off I the agree. top, too. Well, I was just gonna Go say ahead. I agree that if you were in detention in uh, junior yeah. high or high school and the teacher left the room or whatever. And some kid was like, welcome to prime time, bitch. You'd be like, I guess this is the kid that I need to be like, you're compartmentalizing right. your friendship circle. And you're like, Oh, okay. This is the kid I need to be hanging out with. You'd be like, okay, I get, yeah. Okay. They get right. it. Okay. I got to, that got to hit, hit, that would hit, hit him the- up after detention. Yeah, absolutely. And that of course would lead to the, you know, the de- the devious snickering, you know, because, you know, you just own the detention ward person behind their back. Yeah, but on a low, so, on a more low key level, you know, the kids are laughing. They're they're yeah. they're enjoying it. But you are connecting from across the room because you <laughs> both know, you know, that's a Freddy line. But you know, right? Exactly. So there's that for sure. Um, you know, right off the top, I have on my list, too, that this is the debut of Patricia Arquette. And I put next to it, Hubba Hubba. Well, we can bring back I mean. our uh, EG Daily Award for <laughs> the most bonerific person in this movie. Um, I'm going to give you a swerve here and I'm going to say Larry Fishburne gets my EG Daily Award. Talk about Man. a hunk of dick. I ain't mad at you about that. That is a uh, that is a tall glass of water there. That man back when he was still being billed as Larry Fishburne, which is uh, you know part of his early career, and and obviously this this predates um, Boys in the Hood uh, as well. So he's he's fresh, fre- fresh off the Hollywood lot back lot. Um, but yeah, Patricia Arquette uh, has a much meatier role in this, and is obviously um, Babely as well. Yeah. Um, and I would say that, you know, at this point, 
given the time frame that it came out, I would have equated this, uh, my experience with Larry Fishburne as being, of course, Cowboy Curtis. So for mm. me, it was like, yeah, we get Cowboy Curtis in the movie. We got him in the mix. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, without looking, is that like basically the only thing he did before this? No, he had a role in, um, Apocalypse Now, real young. Oh, that's I. I completely had forgotten that. Yeah. So yeah. outside of just being in what's regarded as one of the greatest war films of all time, <laughs> outside of that, yeah. and Pee Wee's Playhouse, uh, what a weird run um, to finding himself. Uh, mm. I mean, it all culminates in Boys in the Hood, obviously. I think that's yep. when everyone knows the part. The fucking block party starts there. Um, but what a, what a cool little run of, of movies up to that point. Or I don't know. I mean, I feel like a lot of people at this point really know Lawrence Fishburne from The Matrix. I plan, you know, being Morpheus. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably what he's most recognized for. But um, Boys in the Hood is his most iconic. I mean, not most iconic. His most heralded in terms of mm-hmm. like you know that that is a that's a performance that will that will live on forever in a from a like a film geek perspective sure yes in terms of like classic filmmaking classes i guess is what i'm trying to say yeah right importance of that role um is you know can't, can't be understated um so since we're kind of on the uh, cast train here, of course, let's go uh, ahead. Just keep it going. Circle back around to we've got the introduction of uh, mom hair. Uh, Heather Langenkamp is thrown in the mix and, you know, we're all the better for her coming back. And <laughs> you were saying what uh, Nancy, bigger hair. the bigger the hair, the closer <laughs> to Jesus Thompson. Yeah, right. So that's that's great that we get her back, because even though like two obviously is great for what it it is, you know, it really is a shame that we didn't get her with that. But, you know, I think we're all the better that like, I guess it kind of um, gave us more of a reason to realize that we needed her back in this series by having that lapse in between the two. Yeah, maybe the breath, um, the breath of fresh air that is <laughs> too gives you a little bit of a reprieve um, before you get right back into like, you know, this is this is like real deal Nightmare on Elm Street stuff, whereas two was almost like <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street's on vacation or like it's uh, it's the house on the block that has the fumigation circus tent on it. It's like we're <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street's under construction, but we'll be back after we kill the, fucking, the bed bugs infestation. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so those are like the big bigs in terms of the, the casting here. Uh, we would be remiss without talking about the secondary characters and how uh, amazing some of them are. Now, some obviously stand out more than others, but I would say like all in all, the cast in this movie does a fantastic job. Um, we get and a return. It's, of, and it's really well casted, like very well cast know, in terms of a, the, the roles that are being portrayed and being asked to do everyone like that. They casted for those specific roles is is perfect. Yeah, of course, we get a return of John Sack- Saxon. John, but this <laughs> the tripod Saxon, back and drunker than ever. <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, you know, he's in pretty uh, bad shape at this point. You know, he's he's definitely worse for the wear. I love my John Saxon surly. 
Yeah, and he definitely gives that in spades with this one. He's he has clearly become the absentee, deadbeat, uh, shitty cop dad that he was destined to be. And he's actually edition. no longer, sadly, no longer the tripod because because of the <laughs> insane amount of drinking, he's just had permanent limp dick. So um, <laughs> right, sadly, so, he had to retire the the tripod jersey up into the rafters. Yes, we have our penile dysfunction version of John Saxon <laughs> in, in this edition of Nightmare on Elm yeah, Street. Yeah, I take it back. That's not my favorite version of John Saxon. <laughs> um, but aside from him, I you know, we can kind of go down and and discuss each individual other uh, dream wear, if you like, and kind of rank them. I don't know if that's a, a cool. way you would like to go about this. That's so, a fun way of, of going about doing it. Um yeah. Well, why don't you why don't you go ahead with who's your favorite dream warrior? We're just a couple of guys, you know, belly belly to the bed, feet in the air, looking through teen beat. Who's your favorite dream warrior? Well, I think we've established off the mic that I think our favorite dream warrior is Kincaid, right? Off the mic, yes, we did talk about, and I will stand by that. I I I, I love Kincaid. Um, yeah, probably probably the most and i think his power makes the most sense which i think yeah. is super important here when talking about um <laughs> the dream warrior collective so if we start with kincaid and we'll work our way down from there who who would we throw in as as next best next best well you know he's <laughs> He's in the movie briefly, but I do genuinely like what is it, Philip? The, Philip the marionette, is the, the uh, yeah, guy. it's the marionette death. Um, yeah, I do. I do like uh, Philip. He's coming in. He's coming in strong. Um, I, I would he, agree with he, that. He doesn't really get to exercise any powers per se. He gets dispatched pretty early on through his gnarly ass death, but he's still, as far as like pers- personality wise, he seems like a really personable individual that you would just want to chill with yes he's the and, yeah he would get the miscongeniality of the dream warrior ward <laughs> right um then after that i mean because i don't know do we need to establish Kristen as in this because i think it's just a given that she's kind of like the leader of the dream warriors and she has the most powerful applicable abilities within the, the dream warriors yeah it's hard to rank her in this because um yeah like how do you rank her she's either at the top or you exclude her altogether because obviously she'd be ahead of Kincaid or we're just she's excluded uh because it she's almost too much of a a primary character whereas we're talking about like secondary dream warrior characters sure, you know sure. the, the group as it were minus right. Kristen right so okay so we have that that's been established so then we have what would be the bottom four, uh, which is comprised of Joey, Taryn, and who's the who's the welcome to primetime bitch? Yeah, that's Jennifer. That's Jennifer, and then we've got Will. So, right. So we gotta break it down from there. This is 
Chit Chatter, your big breaking TV. From the prime time, bitch. I mean, I, I honestly think Joey would be next. Um, and then it's a, it's a three-way tie for suck after that. <laughs> yes, I agree. Because Joey ultimately is the one that kind of ends Freddy with his power. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. That's true. Oh. He has like the, um, yeah, like the power of shout or whatever the hell, like <laughs> whatever yeah. it's called in fantasy terms. Sure. So let's break down the, the final three. Well, Jennifer gets taken out real quick and she doesn't have any powers and she's definitely kind of like this. She's not. It's hard to be sympathetic towards her because she seems like she's very weak in a lot of ways. She just all she does is just want to chain smoke and become an actress. So yeah, that's her power. Yeah, that's you know awful. what I mean? <laughs> right. And then but, go ahead. But then we got Taryn, who's next, who has a particularly gnarly revolting death you know she gets the uh the uh syringes in the track in the in the gaping talking uh, <laughs> track marks in her arm. i love yeah the uh yeah all those sucking pustule <laughs> holes yeah all over her arms yeah great death bad but bad character in terms well, of like with- you know, with her, it's like now when I was a kid, you know, before I had really gotten into anything remotely punk rock or like knew anything about the culture and the fashion and had any inkling of wanted to even look like that. Like I thought like, oh, well, she looks like a badass. You know, she looks really cool. But now it's like it's so corny, like in hindsight. No, her that's costume, good. That's good to point out. It, it's it just doesn't age well. Her character doesn't age well. No. And it's another one of these instances of we've talked about this on previous episodes because we've covered a lot of movies that have um punk rock people in them and so there's this hollywoodification of punk rocks and gang culture that's just really misses the mark where you think like god did the producers and people who like had anything to do with this ever, have they ever actually seen what a punk rock person looks like or a gang banger they just like (laughs) go to spirit halloween and like get like the budget like punk rock costume and throw it on somebody (laughs) johnny lydon fucking yeah (laughs) yeah photo costume yeah there's basically like the penelope spherus punks and then everything else like she has everything else the hold on the most realistic portrayal of that in cinema so 100 so taryn's like out outfit and her whole you know vibe that she's like a badass when it's just like also she has these two dinky like switch blades that she's, she's using at her weapon as her weapon and she doesn't even stand a chance. That's another thing with like those other dream warriors that actually, when they you go don't believe the, in it, well, they go into the dream world together to fight yeah. Freddy and they're all set up. Like they're going to like kick his ass and like they immediately get wasted by Freddy. There's like no, yeah, contest. she's, she quit, she's like the quintessential knife to a gunfight. Okay. You brought two <laughs> switchblades. You know that he has five. So you're already, right. you brought le- fewer switchblades to the party and he's you like not fucking 
difficult math. Like, you know, he's got <laughs> five blades and yes. your whole thing is you're bringing two. And, and you know, one of those is just a comb. So right. <laughs> it's actually one switchblade. The other one <laughs> is just to comb her hair. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's just funny because like Freddie's glove and his claws are clearly like they're an extension of his body. They're yeah. an extension of his anatomy. They're a part of him. So he is going to be fully well versed in utilizing his weapon. Whereas you're, you know, you're going to be paling in comparison uh, when you spar with him. And incidentally, I had read that um, her death was supposed to be even gnarlier. The, f- the original intent was to get her to, you know, have the syringes put in those track marks and then freddie was going to pump her to the point where her head exploded and they uh oh like a la um uh who framed roger rabbit (laughs) yeah but apparently they couldn't get the the practical effect to look right it just looked fake so they just ditched it oh cool that's that's yeah i mean i did not know that um yeah, that's a, that's a cooler idea. And we talked about this uh, as well off the mic that trypophobia is the fear of holes and mm-hmm. looking at her arm. If you if you squirm uh, more than normal, you might have you might be a trypophobe. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so there we have Taryn. And then last but not least, we have uh, Will, Nerd Will. who Which I think he, is could have been really cool. Like I thought the Dungeons and Dragons thing could have been cool. But it just doesn't work out. I just uh, him as the dungeon master, whatever master wizard, whatever the fuck the moniker he gives himself. It, it mm-hmm. yeah, I, who cares? It's like the the lamest Harry Potter cosplay of all time. Yeah, it just it doesn't land, unfortunately. Um, but I will say this to kind of dip our toes into the the wealth of Freddie quotes in this movie. For some reason, the one that he uses, the the line he uses with Will just particularly always sticks out to me. And it's like the cadence that Robert Englund uses when he's saying it. He says, you know, Will, you know, you're fine now. But when you wake up, it's back (laughs) in the saddle. Again, and just the way he says it, that cadence—it's so rad. It's like he's saying, like they're like, "Hey, we need you to say the tagline of the movie." <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Which also, that, he says that, something like, "Sorry, kid, I don't believe in fairy tales or whatever." Yeah. And then that's when he like hoists him up and like kills him. But I feel like a lot of like Freddy's lines in this are all just like taglines. They're all taglines. Welcome to primetime, bitch. It's back in the saddle again, you know. Uh, yeah, so, but that one in particular, we were talking about with the last uh, installment, um, we were discussing how they utilize that effect on Robert England's voice to give it him more depth and like yeah. more of an the echo and the depth to it to make it sound more menacing. I don't know what exactly they did, like if they pitch shifted his voice or how they affected it, but like it's really prominent in this movie as well, where he just sounds like terrifying. <laughs> they basically just pushed it through the Christian Bale Batman filter and <laughs> <laughs> and then there you go. Yeah. So there we go. I think we've like covered all of the Dream Warriors and their abilities. We didn't really talk about um uh what is it neil the psychiatrist 
which he, you know, he yeah. has a pivotal role. Neil. Yeah, he does. Yeah. But he's not technically a dream warrior. Well, he's not. He's not a dream warrior. But yeah, we didn't cover him as a character. Yeah. Yeah. So him aside. I do, I do think this actually segues nicely. Let's litigate the best death then. Okay. Yes. I did want to talk about that as well because there's a lot of really choice deaths in this. For me, I, man, I got to go with the welcome to primetime bitch shoving Jennifer into the TV. That is so gnarly. Um, yeah. I will agree. So we have Philip with the marionette death, Jennifer with the welcome to primetime uh, arms, robo arms coming out of the TV, grabbing Jennifer and smashing her through the front of the TV death. I agree. Mm-hmm. That one's the, the coolest one. Taryn has the has the overdose needle death, um, yeah. which I think is close to, you know, I think it's a close second. Um, will has the wizard master like... <laughs> <laughs> he just okay. gets impaled by Freddy pretty much. Yeah, yeah. So you know, a lot of these deaths have such elaborate sometimes it takes a long time for the death to actually happen. So yeah. it's like I was trying to think of how to describe it. It's like that it's like a guar wheelchair. <laughs> right. <laughs> but that doesn't it's, actually kill him. That's just part of like the beginning of his death. That wheelchair um, is essentially it's a BDSM device. <laughs> it is yeah yeah <laughs> yeah um and yeah and and nancy's weak ass death which i'm sure we'll get to in the bad well and then also we have to discuss john saxon's death john saxon oh, sure, gets sure gets thrown by skeleton freddy onto the shard of the you know the junkyard car which impales him yeah yeah, and also, we, we this watch is as not- his uh, his dick tri- shrivels back up into him, and he and he that's it. His power, yeah. his power <laughs> leaves his body. <laughs> his power is completely concentrated in his giant dick just, that he just, that doesn't just. work anymore. His giant, lifeless, impotent penis. Um, I also want to mention that this isn't a death. This is a potential death. Is the uh freddy snake the very phallic slimy freddy yeah, snake that's what sucks that one's not on the the litig- so let's close the litigation it's jennifer's death is the best one for yeah um, with three. a close 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 second Taryn, with with uh, the marionette gets the, i think the marionette death is a close oh, second. Oh, okay. Yeah. I would I would have given it to Taryn as a close second. Oh, really? Okay. No, I I think like when the, when the veins like yank out of his arms, it's so gross, dude. It's like you're like uh. I think that's gross, but I think the actual um, application of of him cutting the strings and falling it, it's too like I don't want to say like too CGI, you know, for me. Because but they didn't it, have CGI at the time. That was clearly yeah, a practical it's, effect. It's totally, it's, it's still practical, but it feels, it, it, it feels weird because of the way it's shot. And I don't know how it's shot, but it, it, it feels almost like, um, it just looks strange to me. Yeah. I have no other way of explaining. It. Fair, fair enough. Um, so yes, but definitively we say, welcome to the, primetime bitch death is the best also this is a return of the condom freddy 
in that. Yeah, good to see him. <laughs> good to see him back. To you know, he was raw dogging in two, um, yeah, but now he's back and and uh, using proper production, which is nice. Yeah, well, you know, it's only appropriate with two that he was barebacking it, you know, mm-hmm. in the BDSM yeah. rooms. It was, it was just part of uh, you know part of the culture, part of the thoroughfare of two. <laughs> um, but yeah, the anaconda Freddy rippling under the carpet and then behind the wall, like it, it, it's a uh, it's a really good piece of of practical effect work. It, it it's it's tight, like really cool. Whereas like the marionette thing is I can't explain how they did it, but I don't like the way it looked. I can't explain how they did this Mm -hmm. other than probably like blasting a bunch of air underneath the the ground and through the wall or whatever to blow out the, you know, the pieces of the floor and the wall. But I love the way it looks. Well, I would assume at that time, as far as the marionette death goes, the way they would do things like that is they would basically superimpose yeah. uh, film elements on top of each other to create that sort of effect of somebody, you know, being on top of a building in a precarious place. And of course, they did like, uh, you know, uh, a layering opacity effect with Freddy in the sky, you know. Yes. So. And so... I think with the superimposition, when you do that, sometimes things can give can have a um, kind of a ghostly appearance, right? <laughs> like Absolutely, an apparition sort of like they're almost yep. like half invisible because you're yep. doing the superimposing where two elements have to be combined on a on a you know a green screen of a of a you know the outside of the building or whatever. So there's a lot yeah. going on there to where it, it's not as bold as like, say the needles going into those, those sucking pustules on, on Taryn's arm or whatever. Right. For sure. Um, <clears throat> so I wanted to point out that w- the thing that I like about this as well, in terms of soundtrack and score is this is the most rocking nightmare on Elm street we get yet and this is a theme that also carries into the next one but we've of course you know we get docking with this one with one of the best metal based horror movie theme songs of all time like hands yeah. down yeah we Absolutely. get two in it actually we get into the fire and then we get the dream warriors so i think nightmare on elm street is the heavy metal uh, of the big three, like if they yeah. were musical genres, like Nightmare on Elm Street would be like, it's like the metal version of yeah. the three. I don't know what the other two classifications would be. Like Friday the Thirteenth is almost like, <laughs> I was gonna say the ska, oh <laughs> man, because it's just the same goddamn thing. It's like three waves of shit we didn't ask for. <laughs> <laughs> like okay, we're getting a third wave of this. Uh, okay. Like, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) I I don't think that's quite an apt uh, analogy to make, but I like it nonetheless. So we'll just go with that. (laughs) And what's Halloween? Halloween is classical music. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I do really like the whole, um, (laughs) the, uh, the nurse, the nurse attack, the demon Freddy nurse, um, taking advantage of uh, our boy uh, Joey the Horn Dog, Joey the the mute Horn Dog. 
Yeah. And the, so, if I had a button on my desk to slap the, the titty alert, we got <laughs> we got some full frontal here. I thought it was Heather Locklear for like a fucking second. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just some some ram, it's, rando it's, it, that was brought in to do the topless scene. Yeah, we get a budget bin Heather Locklear with this one. It but is, nonetheless, it is a five a five below Heather Locklear. <laughs> but but nonetheless, a yes, a fine uh, a fine facsimile. Also, apparently the the lady, the actress that played that nurse, who I'm drawing a blank on. Yeah, there was a poll done of best horror movie boobs, and I think she got like four, the fourth place one. I think her name is Stacy Alden. Yes, that's it. Stacey Alden. Thank you. So she got you know, fourth place. For, she got fourth place in ranking of best horror movie titties. I don't want to put you on the spot. Do you remember any of the first three? No, I just read okay, that, that she fine. was number four. So Good I would like her. to that's see a, the top five ranking is is that's strong. It's strong. And I mean, she's got the goods. So. She does. But for my money, I would have, you know, just preference wise would have preferred if we got a topless uh Zsa Zsa gabor scene but you know it's not gonna always happen <laughs> actually you know what i might be misremembering it might not have been her in this one it might have been uh the lady in four that we'll get into but either way um fine fine representation of the female anatomy in this movie as well yes it, it is um it is whole she's packing whole milk whereas Jaja, that that'd be more of a powdered milk but still yeah. For for your money, I, I feel like that could have been something in this movie that would have been memorable. What I I, I would like to point out that, um, in many ways, and this goes back to two, of course, with you know the subtext involved in that. I think we have to give credit where credits due. That Freddie, as a uh, sexually liberated villain, it, he was pretty advanced because we have Freddie not only you know, in roles where he is, um, I guess, expressing homosexual uh, tendencies and, and, and desires. But we also have him in multiple roles where he changes gender. So he is a gender fluid trans villain. So he should be toted as the hero of the pansexual movement, really. I mean, Uh, yeah. change that and flag to have uh, red and green on it. Red and green. <laughs> the, the pansexual flag should, should just be a, like just his sweater, basically. Well, and like, I mean, really, you know, we're not going to pull any punches here. Let's put it all out here. I mean, he did fuck kids, too. Like he just he had he had no boundaries whatsoever. Freddie yeah. would fuck if anyone there's any and anything. Noted, any noted pansexuals <laughs> listening to this show, like you're not a true pansexual unless you're fucking kids. OK, so I don't want to hear that you're open with this and you're shit. Liberated. But, yeah, you're not yeah. liberated. If, if you're not tongue in a six year old's butthole, I don't want to fucking hear it about <laughs> your pansexualism. Okay, because you're actually pretty, pretty, you know, conservative at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Calm down. So, (laughs) so we have that. Um, I also like Tuxedo Freddy, the Freddy that is, uh, you know, uh, Kristen's mom's boyfriend that comes in during the the nightmare. (laughs) Absolutely. Where's the bourbon? And then comes in and like cuts her head off. And St. Elmo's, uh, St. Elmo's Freddy. Yeah. Yeah, so that's pretty good. Um, what else? I was going to mention this. Um, it was something that I touched upon in 
and we that we discussed in Night of the Creeps. I love that characters with disabilities getting roles where it's not like a guy playing some uh, a character because he has a disability, but a character that happens to have a disability that's part of this cast. Um, yes, and that's that's fucking tight because honestly, in terms of like the last landscape of of walls that need to be kind of pushed pushed down that that's that's something we just don't get a lot of is honest portrayals of that and i just hearken back to bitch ass petulant crybaby bitch ass franklin from franklin texas chainsaw massacre and how much he set this movement back yeah he (laughs) really really he really gave yeah he gave the disabled a real bad name in horror movies but now we got night of the creeps and we have and we and you know i think it's a it's a great role in in this as well his name is escaping will will is yeah will Will is the the wizard lord so i want to throw that out there that it is I, I like that whole dynamic um, mm-hmm. in terms of diversity of of the cast. I think that's great. Um, well, I also I wanna... like. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Do your thing. I was going to say, I like this idea of the product of a nun being raped by a hundred maniacs on like a holiday weekend or whatever. Um, it's it's very hard to add background or story to characters that are this iconic, especially like this early on into the series. Like we're only on the third one. This is like a concept sometimes that they have to like revitalize characters on the sixth or seventh attempt. Like, okay, we've, they've seen it all. We need to add a background part of this character's story that they don't know before. But the, the idea of how he, uh, he you know, his creation story is mm-hmm. awesome. And they could have really flubbed that. Like it could have been fucking dumb. Um, yeah. But like conceptually really cool. Like I, I love that. He's just like the product of a hundred maniacs. Um, yeah. And this like defiling of, of, you know, a, a holy entity. It, it's uh, it really adds a lot. And I buy all, I'm all in on, on all of that background story whereas you know they they tried to do stuff with jason later on (laughs) to try to explain his supernatural abilities and it's like just don't explain it if you're going to do it poorly well and the same with michael myers too we've talked about that where you know the the way cult stuff yeah right the the serious retcon that and then of course with those shitty remakes you know, Rob Zombie tried to retcon it as him being, you know, the product of of an abusive childhood. As well, my mom's to- a stripper and my dad works at uh, O'Reilly <laughs> Auto Parts. So if you could tell why I'm kind of fucked up. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, but for sure, they did a really good job of being able to set up that backstory with this where, you know, you don't you don't think it's annoying. It doesn't get in the way of your perception. It only enhances your perception of the villain and why he is the demonic creature that he is, because that's another thing, you know, with this series, it sets up right off the bat that Freddie is essentially a demon. Whereas with Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees, initially they're just, they're humans, but they have these superhuman abilities that, just compel it's like they have just like this unnatural compulsion or drive 
to do what they're doing. You know, there's really no thought behind it. They're just like, they're just on a death drive. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it's, it's even, um, Speaking of like this, this demon angle, it, you know, it's even hinted at like Will says something like in the name of Lorik, Prince of Hell's demon be gone. Like, you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it's part of the the mythos. Like he's almost needs is he, he's something that needs to be dealt with on a different level, like on yeah. a supernatural level, on a like uh, like almost like an exorcism like needs to be performed to, you know, expel him from this real from our reality. Well, and that's, yeah, of course that's what they do with each movie is that's how they, they engage in getting rid of Freddie and in vanquishing Freddie is through this kind of like mystical mumbo jumbo kind of like spell casting sort of thing. And, you know, with each sequel, it works to varying degrees of success, basically. So, you well, know, and to piggyback off of that in terms of more good, I don't know why I like it. I'm not a religious person or even really a spiritually faith based individual on any level. Um, so I don't know why I enjoy this in horror movies, but I love when there has to be like you have to go to the church, you have to get you know, you have to get a, something has to be blessed or yeah. you, have to get, you have to commandeer some holy water or find some, uh, you know, holy ground or whatever, hollowed ground, uh, mm-hmm. and, and expel this once and for all, or bring in an exorcist or whatever to, to kind yeah. of use that as a, as a means of, of expelling whatever, whatever it is, you know, obviously in the exorcism. Um, I love that angle. I never get sick of that fucking angle. And I, I like it because it, it represents the most dire straits of of humans faith. I think they're on the like they're on the outs with their quote unquote God, because they're they're If this can exist, then it's it, it shows the darker side of of faith based spirituality. I fucking love it. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm with you on that. I actually kind of had a little bit of like. I don't know. I get a little kind of like curmudgeonly and grumpy about it sometimes, but overall I do like, you know, the occult, mystical, magical, religious angle of, you know, just things in general, especially when it's integrated in a successful way into movies that makes it like cool and creepy and things like that. So yeah, totally. I'm with you on that. Um, I did want to say one other good that I love a lot is I love the whole sequence where um, John Saxon and the psychologist Neil or whatever are engaged in battling Freddy's reanimated Harry Hausen style skeleton and like, yes, yes. And like how, uh, uh, how that all plays out. But ultimately, fantastic. I fucking love that sequence. Yeah. Yeah. That Harryhausen nod is really cool. But what I really love about it the most is when the skeleton thinks that it's won and it's defeated both of them. It Mm -hmm. does this fist pump in the air. Like it like kind of like like it like cries into the air and does like this victory like fist pump. And then it falls down to the ground. It like. 
it, it disintegrates. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fantastic uh, special effects nod to Jason and the Argonauts, you know, yeah. specifically, but Ray Harryhausen doing that sort of stop motion animation, um, you know, 50 to 60 years, well, not prior to this, more like uh, 20 to 30, 30 years prior yeah, to this. 30, yeah. Right. Um, 50 to 60 years prior to us talking about it now, 20 to 30 years from when this movie came out. Um, yeah. It's, it's a great nod. I fucking love it. And it, it is also why this is Nightmare on Elm Street is the metal, like a, a skeleton fist pumping is like the most metal thing I can, I can think of. Whereas, yeah, and- you know, Friday the 13th is just all just uh two tone it uh skanking away (laughs) jason goes to space i'm like ah man this third wave revival is killing me i didn't think they had it in them for another wave here we are man this is really the muster plug of horror movies right now (laughs) (laughs) because i don't i don't want to keep talking about <laughs> Friday the 13th is a ska of the big three movies. But like everybody loves like, you know, early clash and stuff that like that uh pulled from a lot of roots reggae, first wave yeah. ska kind of stuff. So like everyone kind of likes early ska stuff to some imaginable degree. Um yeah. but then yeah, it falls apart over two more waves of, of it. Some people even like have enough patience to get like as far as into like, you know, Operation Ivy. That's personally where I I am a hard stop. I don't go. Oh, you, you hard stop at Operation Ivy. This has got to be get you in a lot of trouble. What in terms of. Well, I think you're misunderstanding. Like I like some Operation Ivy. Ivy. Oh, I, can, oh, okay. I can I can tolerate it, but I don't listen to it with any regularity. And it definitely it it became something that I would give attention to like well past like any sort of like reasonable time in my life when I should be getting into that kind of music. You know what I mean? Yeah. That well, that's why Friday the thirteenth four, whatever, which whatever whichever one is the final chapter is the Operation Ivy of the Friday the thirteenth franchise. <laughs> really? <laughs> But I, I mean, I do, I do genuinely love Jason Takes Manhattan because it's got some pretty, pretty choice kills in it. I but mean, I'm it, a, I'm a fucking total Sika fan. I, I love uh, when he goes to space. So I'm, <laughs> I, I mean, like you said, the ska uh, reference is actually terrible because I like later Friday the Thirteenth stuff. Well, maybe it's not terrible for me because I guess I kind of like some later. Uh, let's move on. Um. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't want to belabor this point too much until we get into the Flicktober edition of Friday the 13th. But right. Is, I need to save all my energy for talking right. about Corey Feldman for six hours. <laughs> but it is worth noting that of the three uh, villains, the three big baddies of, of the horror world, Jason seems to be the most well-traveled. He goes to space. He goes to hell. He goes to Manhattan. This guy just goes everywhere. And we will be talking about Jason because the final episode of yeah. of this Flixtober series will be Final Nightmare and uh, Freddy vs. Jason, which is a personal real big. Uh, I'm a real big fan of Freddy vs. Jason. I think at the time when it came out, uh, it got mixed reviews and there's definitely a, a contingency of, of horror people that, that fucking absolutely hated it. But. I yeah. was the perfect age for when that came out in like 2003 
to be consuming that as a, like a young teenager. That was like everything yeah. I wanted. So anyway, for yeah. sure. Um, and I think unless you have anything else, I think for me that pretty much wraps up the good. We've really um, it, it expounded upon everything that I could that I could think of. I'm looking through my list to see if. Um, oh, <laughs> this isn't a Freddy line, but I really like the line where uh, I can't remember who says it, but they keep they're they're starting to die off, and somebody when they have a group session goes pretty soon. There's not going to be enough of us left to call it group. <laughs> Right. That I is a love, good one. <laughs> I love that line. That's a great line. Um, and I think the junkyard set is really cool. Like, yes. in terms of like a, a final battleground of sorts, or and absolutely you know, no, laying his uh, laying his bones to rest. Nothing's more hollowed than a than a, <laughs> than a junkyard, I guess. Yeah, I mean, again, just to kind of, you know, reiterate the practical effects and set design and all of that with this movie is definitely top notch chef's kiss. Yes. So, yeah, but we can move on to bad. Well, go ahead. Give it to me. Well, I think this is going to be a theme, a recurring theme, more (laughs) bad parenting, more. Yes. This has maybe the height of alcoholic parents. Um Absolutely. And just in, in not only that, but just in general, like just the terrible, terribly, uh, uh, you know, just un, like unavoidable or not unavoidable, but like could be avoided um, circumstance of putting your troubled teen into essentially a prison to get yeah. them mental yeah. health treatment. <laughs> yeah, it's not like a, an outpatient program. <laughs> Right. <laughs> they're checking they're, in and they're not checking out and mom and dad are getting blasted back at home. I mean, that's pretty tight, but from a parenting perspective, not that tight. <laughs> no, it's like they straight up put Kincaid in a rubber room for like Literally. days yeah. at a time. Yeah. I'm surprised there's not like electroshock treatment at this place. Yeah. But they're like but also they're they're sedating them yeah. to calm them down. They're putting, yeah. you know, experimental drugs in them. It's just it's a real like. Uh, so not just bad parenting, but but bad medical treatment and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> bad care is being uh, is being well, given. We're, we're here in the 80s, which, you know, was kind of like really if you could track the beginning of the dismantling of the you know, the mental health industry and the, the infrastructure of mental health uh, and therapy due to Ronald Reagan. That's really kind of like the locus point where, you know, it started to get defunded. So I think it has like a certain commentary on that as yeah. well. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, that that's deep, but I don't think off base. Yeah, certainly not. Um, I, we touched upon, uh, the dream warriors and their various abilities. Right. Kristen's, uh, Kristen's ability to do a backhand spring. <laughs> I'm not sure. Like that's really helpful. Like her ability to teleport via dream um, yes. is obviously much more important, but the, the, this whole like backhand spring thing, uh, uh, I, I don't understand the, the gymnast angle and why they came up with um, with that for her. It's like a Carrie Strug. Like, who cares? Yeah. And I would say, again, to kind of, you know, put this within the context of the era, gy- gymnasts and like Olympic athletes 
being put on a pedestal and being these these heroic representations of the best of the U.S. and what we had to offer, especially like here we're still, you know, in the midst of the Cold War. This is like a few years before the fall of, you know, the Soviet Union. Um that was, uh, I would say that's almost like kind of like a minor nod to like U.S. like jingoism where like, you know, being like a world class athlete, an Olympic athlete and being a great gymnast was a sign of like America's greatness at the time. So I would say that that might even be kind of like a subtle nod to that. You ain't wrong. I mean, this wasn't an Olympic year, but it's the year before the the uh, Summer Olympics in Seoul. Right. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, so yeah, lay, that's, that's a super lame <laughs> superpower. If you can even call it that. I mean, yeah. the only thing worse is Taryn's ability to be an extra from class of 1984. So like, yeah. I guess that's lamer. <laughs> if we put Taryn on the, on, on the spectrum of like lame kind of faux Hollywood punks, would you say that she's looks more like a Valley girl punk or a class of 1984 punk somewhere in between? I right. Like <laughs> definitely on this, on the spectrum. What did we, what did we say the spectrum was from Gigi to, <laughs> I don't even know. I think it was from Gigi Allen to Avril Lavigne. We got right. like, yeah, she's, I don't know. Somewhere halfway, but closer to the Avril Lavigne on that on that spectrum. She's I definitely guess. like a casualty punk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yes. she's like, she, yeah, she's definitely mall punk for sure, but like an '80s mall punk. No. Yeah, I because the the care and attention that's paid to looking uh, as ridiculous as she does. Um, you know, she's she's putting more time and energy into that than than a valley girl would going to the Galleria on a Friday night just in putting hair and makeup together. So, yeah, 100 percent. Go ahead. And um, punk rock love is my favorite casualty song. So there. <laughs> <laughs> I talked so much shit about. Well, I didn't talk a lot of shit, but I did talk a little bit of shit about the casualties when I was on Nate and Gray's podcast. Oh, did you? What did you say about the casualties? Well, just because there was a band that we listened to that was very like street punk sounding, very mm. kind of like um, milk toasty, like limperous, not limperous, but limp dick like uh, street punk. And I was talking about how. Yeah, like I tried to get into the casualties again way late, way past any sort of like reasonable time I should have. And I was like, man, this shit's boring. <laughs> Musically, yes. Um, it's it's very, yeah, it, it's whatever. And Jorge has been canceled now. So whatever, I guess. We don't yeah, unfortunately, he got canceled while I was in the midst of booking a show for them. So that was a real uh, fun time to deal with. I remember, <laughs> I remember all this, actually. Um, yeah, it was it was a real bummer because we talked about your buddy, uh, particularly being vociferous and, uh, you know, very opinionated uh, on something that I know he doesn't care about, which is funny. <laughs> right. Anyway, that's, we digress. that's the worst kind of opinionated. Yeah. Um, so go ahead. What uh, what other goods or bad? Sorry. Well, what we other bad? We talked yeah. about this, but Nancy's death is awful. I don't know yeah, why you bring back. Um, I, I don't know why you bring back Heather Langenkamp for her to get the most basic bitch death. Like she just gets a like a gloving. <laughs> she just gets right. the glove stab. Like 
it's not even like a, a there should have been like some like last caress kind of fucking thing going on but she's like ex, expelled uh like like she's a secondary dream warrior uh it, yeah. it's it's crazy she deserved a cooler more elaborate death and a better send off it it's it's the glaring bad of the movie for me our our girl deserves so much better yeah, I, I, come on, I agree, come up with something, anything like, or some dialogue between the two that so the audience like it's almost like in passing, like oh, did yeah, she just it, like legit die to the where you're like, oh, I think like her death is setting up po- a possible return, but no, that is like her death in in this series. It's super anticlimactic. I agree. 100%. Anticlimactic would be putting it nicely. Yes. Yeah. 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 What bad do you have? I mean, those are really it for me. There, again, this is another instance, like we said, we've got a lopsided good versus bad. There's not a whole lot of bad to discuss. I agree. So, let's move on to questions then. Let's, let's move on to questions. I have one question that kind okay. of per- permeates the whole, you know, concept of this series. And it it gets kind of like brought up again when we are brought to the junkyard and they find Freddie's remains in a bag. <laughs> but also because like my partner and I, we watch a lot of like true crime and stuff like that. So we've become fairly, you know, um, layman's verse, amateurly well-versed in the ways of forensic sciences. But my question is, would the murder of Freddy Krueger pass the rigors of forensic science to the point that no one would find out? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good, that's a really good question. I think, I think the question almost pivots into finding out or caring. Like it doesn't seem right. like anyone cares to find out. Um, right. But yeah, to, to uh, expunge upon, expound upon your question, it's like <laughs> in a real life application, um, would they w- would as a collective society, no one cared that he was gang murdered vigilante style. <laughs> True. Yeah. And we talked about that, you know, in the last episode where we talked about what's the definition of proper, you know, justice you know proper procedure when it comes to giving people a fair trial regardless of how awful they are in 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 this context right you know right you know versus like you know anybody can just murder somebody for their own whims or whatever and as long as some sector of society deems them as being miscreants or villains or you know bad for society you know like then we give you know certain vigilantism a pass in those regards i'm not necessarily i'm not like I'm not giving any sort of like value judgment on that. It's just a, it's, it is a thought that we need to like engage in, especially with, with regards to this series. <laughs> yeah. I, and I always think it's weird when people like wish for like, you're going to get your fucking butt plugged in prison. Like, I don't right. know why we're like hoping for sodomy. Like it's, right. it's a really fucked up, it's uh, very fucked up kind of way of living your life if if your your sense of vengeance is is uh, this eye for an eye justice is is very strange but also i've never been put in the situation of really dire 
horrific circumstances of a child being taken from me or something like that. I think I could, I would wish some pretty awful things about somebody, I guess, if, if sure. I were in those shoes, it's easy to say that as a third party. Yeah, no, I agree. Again, it's, it's just questions to ponder yes. philosophical and ethical things to consider. We're getting deep on the, yeah. the questionable here. Um, so I'll get silly first. It's not silly, but did you, uh, I had to look it up because I, I thought I remembered this being true. But I, when I saw Kristen pouring coffee grounds into her mouth, followed and chasing it with Diet Coke, um, I remembered that Diet Coke had more caffeine than regular Coke. So I had to look it up. And sure enough, Diet Coke does have more caffeine than regular Coke. So I think it's a really cool nod that she's chasing the coffee with the higher caffeinated Coke. Yeah. I mean, got to stay awake. No, no, there's no, uh, <laughs> you notice that there isn't a, uh, a return of, uh, the product, the fictional product placement of the stay awake or stay up pills with this one. <laughs> yeah, it's really sucks. Uh, yeah. Stay up uh, with no Y, just STA dash up pills. Um, in mem- they're in our in memoriam uh, Oscar segment <laughs> here. Well, because at this point, the, the franchise had gotten so popular that they had to actually start using real product placement as opposed to. Yeah, like Diet the- Coke. <laughs> the the, uh, the made up ones and the you know the fictitious ones. Um, yeah. This I don't know how much this is a question, but it is another thing to analyze as far as like a pivot in the in the uh, the way things are represented conceptually in this series. But we talked about how in the first two there's this kind of like you know blurring of the lines between where reality is occurring and where the dream sequences are occurring and then we have people dying in real life while they're being murdered in their dreams but this is the first instance of the the occurrence of somebody dying in their dreams but it not being apparent in reality mhm you know mm-hmm. so like philip is getting carried away by his veins by freddie but it just looks like he's sleepwalking you know so we have that instance yeah aaron had the same question my wife aaron asked while we were watching it why aren't why is no one in reality seeing like the veins having been sprung like a like a puppet um, right. Yeah. My answer to that question and to her was typically in these movies, because that happens early on, it's the first death. He is, if he's not the foremost thought of everybody, he has to build his powers. And so, and he yeah. builds, builds it through everyone collectively fearing and worrying about him. And that is accelerated by, you know, people dying off. So my only answer to her was that he's probably not powerful enough yet, but that could just be headcanon or it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah, no. And that's, that's a definitely a good way to look at it as well. And then when we get into four, we have an even more egregious, like blurring and like, you know, incohesive way of representing this, this, these deaths. But in this one, do we? It's true. Yeah, it's like all the deaths, as far as we can tell, they're all occurring within the dreams or in the dream world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there is that to point out. This is the most important question of all. 
in terms of dream masters or dream warriors. Why is Nancy's dad driving? (laughs) (laughs) Neil couldn't be DD. Like they pick up John Saxon from the bar and he wastedly drives them and they're like throwing empty bottles out of the fucking car and Neil is sitting shotgun. It's like, I think they switch later on, but like the first thought was, all right, all right, uh, Nancy's dad, get behind the wheel and drive us to the junkyard. It, it's ins- <laughs> it's insane <laughs> that they're asking him to drive anybody. And he's a cop. Yeah. He's a, that's he's why a, he's doing it. That's why he's doing <laughs> it. He's just a shitty cop. But still, Once again, Neil needs to fear for his own life and be like, all right. All right, tripod. You guys hit shotgun. <laughs> I agree. Um, this is kind of an observational question that I don't know if you notice, but do you notice in the beginning of the movie, when we first get introduced to Joey, he has what appears to be a teardrop tattooed under his eye. And then the, it's not apparent throughout the rest. I did not notice that. Uh, maybe he killed somebody and got a laser removed. Apparently, because it's really only there for that. So when, there is the scene where he first is interacting with the hot, sexy nurse and he comes out of his dorm and you see a shot of him from like a profile. He has, it looks like a teardrop under his eye, but you never see it through the rest of the movie. It's really weird. I'll have to go back and timestamp it and uh, take a look at it. No, that's fucking wild and weird. Yeah. Maybe they, I, they were like, we're going to give you a teardrop tattoo. And then they're like, ah, fuck. So now they became a continuity error. Yeah. Um, That's all I've got as far as questions, really. Well, our final thing to do is to um, kind of rank this in our in our grand scheme of these movies. Um, Or do you want to wait for the end of four to do that? Let's wait till four. Yeah, I don't think we should do it yet. We'll wait for the end of our... um, our dream master discussion and we'll rank those accordingly. So, um, okay. So to the listeners, if you've made it this far, we're going to take a brief TV timeout and then we're going to return and then we're going to dive into the dream master. Do you know what terror is? Hello. Do you live here? Nobody lives here. Real terror. How long has it been since you've been on Elm Street? Welcome to a brand new nightmare. The first in fear. I don't you help me! I someone help me, Second to none. Don't let them put you to sleep. He has no mercy. And no equal. Now no one sleeps. Get ready. This August. Wildest dreams will come true. How sweet, fresh meat. 
A Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 4. The Dream Master. Okay, we are back with our Dream Master segment, Adam. Um, and as we said off the top uh, at the beginning of the episode, we are bringing back long-heralded uh, icon and Mount Rushmore director of the podcast, Rennie Harlan. Um, I fucking love Rennie Harlan uh so much he's the finished bad boy that i never knew i needed in my life um cinematically and i think to begin this dream master discussion i think it's important to note that up to when he um directed dream master which came out a year later in 1988 um he had only done two movies uh a low budget Finnish action movie called Born American, which came out in 86, and an American film, uh, horror film called Prison that came out the same or uh, the year prior to Dream Master. So it's really weird that he was asked to do this movie. <laughs> um, you would have thought like he would have had uh, the filmography that he has now. Like, obviously, I brought up Cliffhanger as, as a movie that we discussed in season one. Um, I brought Deep Blue Sea to the table in season two because I love both those movies. And I think he's he directs like he has a rock and roll directorial style of where he's just big dick energy and uh, kind of just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks kind of um, directorial style. Crazy that he was that he was asked to do this, but I'm glad he was because this one has some of my favorite kills of any of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. A hundred percent. And from what I've read, basically, he pestered Robert Shea day in and day out to the point where they're like, fine, this guy looks like he's homeless and he needs help. So we'll just have him direct this fucking movie. So he'll leave us alone. That's, That's what it came great. down to. I, I love that story even more. I don't. I don't think I. Uh, you know, I was posing the question. I'm glad you had an answer um, because uh, outside of just being like, "That's wild," because he had he's young, like still, like he's still mm-hmm. like considered like a younger director. Um, but for back then, had to have been like just you know fresh off the Finnish boat to fucking <laughs> Staten Island. Like it's crazy. Yeah, apparently they actually had to, like, buy him a new wardrobe because he was wearing the same clothes every day and, like, smelled like shit. They were, they were, Robert Shea was like, are you okay, man? Like, yeah, (laughs) that's not a great discussion to have to have with your, uh, with your, with your director. But um, it's, it's, uh, this is all to say that I'm just glad this gives us another opportunity to talk about Rennie Harlan and what goes on inside that man's brain um because this is uh one of the more unique nightmare on elm streets because of his thumbprint that he puts on this franchise he still collectively brings together everything that you expect from a nightmare on elm street movie but he still makes it uniquely Rennie Harlan. And I think that's really important because we don't get a ton of movies in this franchise or the big three franchises where someone isn't just doing a cookie cutter version of what you expect to see without their sort of film style coming through. And I think his is the best example of any of the big three franchises of somebody's film style coming through outside of, you know, 
John Carpenter and Wes Craven themselves. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, to date, this discussion we've had previously, this is the highest grossing of the original six series of Nightmare on Elm Street, right? Well, up to this point, when this came out in 88, it did become the highest grossing. Now, if we're Mm -hmm. talking about lifetime gross, that's a whole different thing. And the original uh, technically has a higher lifetime gross. And I I, there was um, I don't have the list in front of me, but it's like third or fourth on the list of lifetime gross. But that's pretty crazy because I'm not sure that this is necessarily the best movie in the franchise. It's some people's favorite for, for various reasons. It has my favorite kills and specifically one of the kills in it is like one of my favorite horror movie scenes ever. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I, you know, it's kind of a mess, so it's crazy that it, it did so well financially. Yeah, totally. So, that uh, all off the top, without further ado, did we want to discuss uh, our surprise that we're going to uh, be bringing on here next? Yes, we're um, hearkening back to our Dial a Dude segment. We are revamping it uh, as a Jerky Boys uh, call in session <laughs> of sorts. Um, but yeah. You've you've uh, got a friend on the line that you're or that you're wanting to call to bring in for this discussion. A big Dream Master fan, if you will, and a big Nightmare on Elm Street fan. So, yeah, I think we should get him on the blower for the good, the bad and the questionable discussion. Yeah. Once again, I put out the rallying call to uh, my miscreant circle of friends to get the baddest of the bad onto the pod to have a discussion about this movie uh so let's uh go ahead and and dial our dude up here we go hopefully you know we don't like catch him off guard hello hello Uh, hello is this is this john caution hello hello sorry wrong number wrong number all right well fair enough uh we we could have swore what what can <laughs> if you don't mind me asking uh, what, what where are we calling right now who is this 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 is john caution hoffman speaking oh so it is john caution all right so i mean i know that there's like several people named john caution in the world so you know it's like a very common name especially yeah, in, in, I, in the I took care of them. I took care of them. There's only one left there, now. There can be only one. It's a, it's a very Highlander situation here. <laughs> uh, well, uh, good to get you on the horn there. Uh, Mr. Caution, uh, just wanted to say up top, uh, that it's been a real pleasure that, uh, to have you come on and agree to all this. And, you know, we're going to have a real hoot. I just wanted to say up top though, um, before we get into the meat of the podcast, if you want to kind of introduce yourself a little bit, give some of your bona fides to our listening audience and maybe, you know, tell us why you specifically were uh, interested in talking to us about this movie. Um, well, part four, where we're talking about the dream master nightmare on Elm Street part four is my favorite of the series. Um, and I, I think I should also add to that. I don't think it's the best of the series, right? You know, there's a difference between like what a personal favorite is and what's the best of it. 
of the series, you know. So I don't think it's the best of the series, but it's my it's been my personal favorite ever since I was in third grade when I first saw it. So um, I mean I've had literally 31 years now of Nightmare on Elm Street experience and it all started with part four. It's the first one I ever saw. Right. And so like Pat and I were discussing in in the previous uh, half that my introduction was incidentally the third one. And then I ended up backtracking and watching the other ones and so on and so forth. Uh, So, yeah. And then, of course, we've had our own personal discussions, you know, about this movie and how much we like it and why it's so fucking insane, you know, and all that. So I felt like it was fitting to have you on not only because of that, but also I wanted to bring up the fact that you and I, we have a new music project. We're going to do a little plug here. Uh, You and I, we go fairly far back in terms of our crossing paths within the, uh, the DIY punk and hardcore and metal scene in the Midwest. So, you know, it just was a matter of time before you and I decided to collaborate on something. And so we've got an ignorant ass new band called hemophiliac. So yeah, it's, it's fucking awesome. Yeah. So we dropped our first track, uh, for that, like last week. And so far I feel like, you know, we've been getting some pretty positive feedback, so that's really cool. But aside from that, you know, notably, you were the longtime front man for Weekend Nachos, uh, a stalwart of the Chicago hardcore and punk scene. So for those of you who are not familiar with Mr. Caution's back catalog and resume. So there you go. Anything else you want to add to your resume here? Well, you might as well prop yourself up. <laughs> I mean, I've been in a lot of pretty bad bands, in my opinion. Um, so bad, I mean, I've, I've been in probably probably forty to fifty bad bands, but I will say, Wicca Nachos is uh, something I'm pretty pretty happy with as as part of my my history. Um, we did we did quite a bit in uh, the thirteen years we were around. I feel like we we accomplished quite a bit and and did it the right way too. So that's something I, I'm I'm cool with uh, you know being plugged as for sure. Um, trying to think if there's anything. I was in a uh, straight edge band called Few in the Proud that was actually pretty sick. We did a, a pretty sick demo and an LP. Um, I, uh, like a spaz inspired power violence band called Cyborg that was only around for about a year that I thought was actually pretty good. Um, I'm just kind of listing off the stuff I'm not ashamed of. Well, I was going to say, um, you would be remiss if you didn't, uh, also mention that you were in the ghost main backing band harm's way. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I was, uh, my friends and I started Harm's Way together around the yeah. time that we were in Few and the Proud. And uh, I played on like the first two seven inches and the first album. Um, we had quite a bit of a different sound back then than Harm's Way does now. Um, but it was a lot of fun. And, and I actually really like those first two seven inches that we did that I played on a lot. So that was before the bass drops. Yeah. Um, you know, I guarantee you that even at that time, I was still tr- probably pushing for some bass drops that just <laughs> that never ended up going through, you know, back when we sounded more like Napalm Death and Crossed Out kind of. Yeah. Um, wasn't really much room for that, but I was probably still trying to do, you know, push for something ignorant like that in the studio. <laughs> it, admittedly, the last time I saw Harm's Way, which we had a discussion about, I was like, the bass drops are kind of sick. 
<laughs> I mean, honestly, like Harm's Way has developed their sound like so much over the years. And uh, some of their, f- the, my favorite material of theirs is stuff that after I was in the band. Yeah. Um, I think their first album, uh, or, sorry, second album, first after I was in the band, but first without me album isolation is mm-hmm. like, that's like the best that harm's way has, has accomplished in my opinion. I think that album is phenomenal. Yeah. It's a good record. Well, cool, man. Thanks for, uh, getting that all out of the way. So without, f- uh, further ado, then we're going to get into the good, the bad and the questionable, unless anybody else has anything else they'd like to add. Pat, you good. I'm good. I was, I was okay. going to say weekend. Nacho is, is his dream master. It's like his musical dream master. Really? <laughs> yeah absolutely but okay. it, it's it's not that's a good analogy because it's and i didn't say it was the best i just but said it was, it was your, but your favorite yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> weekend nachos yeah. was the, the rennie harland of american hardcore is the closest <laughs> thing to rennie harland that i would ever get at the 1511 that's true weekend oh. nachos is the rennie harland of everything honestly <laughs> 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 the usual. So to start with, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, go ahead, Pat. You have been a, doing a fine job of keeping us on track and leading the discussion. So go ahead. Well, um, you know, we can just have like a round table discussion of the good. Um, and I'll just get the party started with the meatball soul pizza is one of my favorite bits of business in the franchise. It, it has not. It's it's, you know. It's my favorite thing that's not directly linked to a death. So it's my favorite like bit of Freddy business. I absolutely love it. And he, the whole like, he loves soul food fucking quote is ridiculous. And, you know, it just works from a practical effects point of view. When he's piercing the fucking meatballs and it is so good and gnarly. It's one of my favorite scenes in this movie. That's not a kill. Yeah. It's uh, fantastic. You know, actually that scene to this day, because my, my dad is like not really a Nightmare on Elm Street fan, really. I mean, he doesn't dislike it and he's seen a few of them. But back when I was a kid, he watched that with me. And to this day, I would say maybe every other time that I go visit my parents, my dad at some point brings up the pizza scene in Nightmare on Elm Street 4. As, as like just this lasting memory that he has forever. Like we still talk about it. Dad approved. It, very much so. Yeah. <laughs> well, because I, it's love, just, I love that part. It's this idea of taking what is essentially a delicious, fun food and making it absolutely horrifying and disgusting. It's, and it's, it's, it's really, really gross. It's really gross when he specifically – shoves the meatball in his mouth with his gloves <laughs> like up until that point it's kind of just like comical you know but yeah. like you can actually like feel your stomach turning just a little bit when he does that because of like it just looks absolutely revolting when he does that and the, yeah. the attention to detail to make the meatballs the actual souls of the individuals that were killed previously like yeah. you can tell it's not just like they could have really phoned it in with like 
He's like really shitty, uh, you know, cast out of uh, whatever foam meatballs to make it yeah. look like anything. But they went to, to the extra mile to make it look like, you know, um, I, can't, I, I can't specifically. Is it like Dan Rick. or some shit Rick. on the pizza? Rick, you little Rick. Rick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, it is. I actually never made that connection that it's 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 a Rick meatball. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It's uh. He, and then they, they do the close up where you can see Rick's face too, and he's like, "Oh no, no." Yeah. Yeah. It's great. And to, to piggyback off of that, when uh, he like sheds his uh, sweater, the souls that inhabit his chest and are screaming are also you know it's rick it's all it's everybody up to that point that's that he's consumed uh for lack of a better word um but the, the souls kind of ripping their way out of freddy there at the end is is also fucking awesome it is specific uh quality of rennie harlan to do more than what he's being asked and just do something ridiculously over the top and if it doesn't work then it doesn't work but if it does land, it's going to be fucking awesome. And that's an example of, of one of his of, of one of the choices that he made that did land. Yeah. And right I don't want to get I don't want to get too far into that. The death of Freddie in this, because I think we should have an at length discussion. So before we get to that, let's talk about some of like the more minor goods um, for me personally. I actually think that opening cut is kind of a banger. This is again, this is this is an extension of the here. We're now in the rockin Nightmare on Elm Streets where it's like we, we were rocking with Dokken and now we have this opening theme song, which incidentally was sung by Tuesday Night. Yep. Yep. I was just so. about to add that, but you beat me to it. So now I don't get credit for knowing that. But, no, but you knew it. You knew it before me. <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't show on the podcast. it's true Um, yeah i know that that's i mean i i i really really have a lot of uh appreciation for how nightmare and elm street movies begin and one of the good for me is definitely that opening sequence um with uh you know the the little girl writing on uh, like the chalk using the chalk on the on the sidewalk while that song plays it's it's just a very creepy beginning and honestly all the way up until the fact when this is some real nerd shit but the new line (laughs) cinema logo you know how like it always starts out where you know the the film the pieces of film are like kind of like rotating and it all comes together you know yeah Mm -hmm. um the way that when the logo finally stops and fully forms that's right when the song hits yeah no, it's like it's, it's a like, really well crafted opening title sequence. Yeah, it's really sick. It's honestly like something that I, I honestly I I look forward to watching just specifically that when I start the movie. Yeah, and that's what's great is getting down to that minutiae of how a film is constructed, even down to like the way the opening credits dovetail into the the introduction of the movie so i'm totally with you on that but to continue further with the the rockiness of this this for a lot of people i think was their introduction to dramarama and that dramarama song is like lit as fuck yes (laughs) you know what i'm saying um i remember i watched this with my wife 
um, before she was my wife, you know, I naturally, when we started dating, I made her watch every single one of these. Um, but, uh, I remember that the part with Rick in the, in the garage, you know, practicing his, his Kung Fu, um, the drama Rama song comes on and my, my wife, then girlfriend was like, Oh, you know, I hear this song at like Neo a lot. Or I, like, I hear this song at like the clubs that I go to. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, wow, that's awesome. Like uh, evidence of this song outside of this movie, because that's where it started for me. It's the first time I heard it. Well, well so yeah, because- I didn't know that it was in, like, I didn't know it was intrinsically because of this movie. I like I, that that song for me, I had heard outside of the movie. So I didn't make the connection that it's specifically famous because of this movie. But yeah, it's a banger track. Well, and it had been a song that had been recorded well before this, but it was one of those songs that I think like it's its placement in this movie elevated it. It, it was kind popularized of lift, because right, of it lifted out of obscurity as yeah. being like, you know, and made Grammarama the one hit wonder that they became known for later on. So, yeah. Yeah. Which is awesome because I was in third grade when I first heard it, and I would not have heard that song probably until maybe eight years later. You know, absolutely. <laughs> so we got that out of the way. Uh, go ahead, uh, either one of you. What's uh, what's some other goods? Well, not just this one, but up to this point, I feel like the Nightmare on Elm Street, Nightmare on Elm Street franchise has done a, a superb job of age appropriate casting, but I think this one stands out as really great. Sometimes you get these movies where there's 30 and 40 year olds. Like we talked about in Christine, how we're like, what the fuck? Like (laughs) there's some awful casting in this of like 40 year old high school characters. But I <laughs> like, yeah, Buddy Repperton is clearly Buddy Repperton is like a 40, years old. <laughs> 45 year old mechanic. Um, but yeah, no, in this, I buy that this like <laughs> this group of teenagers is age appropriate, which I actually I, I that's something that just is a really big pet peeve of mine that takes me out of movies where it's supposed to be high school aged individuals. And that's something that stands out as, as really good to me in this. Yeah. Another another good for me, like kind of piggybacking off of that is, uh, you know, the the cast in general is great. But I and this is honestly from what I've come to realize this is sort of a, an unpopular opinion. But I really like Kristen in this one. Um, OK. You know, I, I know that everybody loves, you know, Patricia Arquette in part three. And I'm not saying I don't, you know, but I really, really don't think Tuesday night gets enough credit for her portrayal as Kristen. I think I've even heard some people say that that was like a major, you know, decline in quality. And I, I really think Kristen is great in part four. Cool. Well, I mean, I will say that you might be in the minority in this group with that one. So I appreciate <laughs> your swerve there from what we might have to say about Tuesday night. Um, well, I will maybe, say that's the sickest fucking name of all time. Yeah, her name. <laughs> if that is her real fucking name, uh, that is awesome. Like that. That's uh, that's where my good ends with her. But uh, well, very it, memorable. It, it is very memorable, and um, I, I think she was just in the position of having to step into Patricia Arquette's shoes. And that is made even more egregious with time as Patricia Arquette right. became as famous as she did. If Patricia Arquette ended up being nothing, the Tuesday night transition would be more seamless, but it's, it's glaring because of Patricia Arquette's uh, fame 
and what she would later grow go on to do. And I think that's sure. that's hard to I don't want to knock her because of that, because that's a lot of shit that's completely out of her control. And she did her. I will say that she did her best. It's just not up to snuff for me. Um, but I'm not, I don't want to hold it against her. I think she did the best she could with, with a really shitty position that she was put in. Yeah. I, I think, uh, I mean, I, I do have a tendency to kind of ignore like any of those like biases that like one might have, you know, like knowing this. Um, so like, you know, when, and you know, again, a lot of this has to do with the fact that it was the first one I saw. So by the time I came around to watching part three, I mean, like to the dude, to this day, Tuesday night is Kristen to me because Mm. that's like what's been embedded in my brain. It's what got me into these movies. So like I instantly associate Tuesday night with Kristen. Um, and then, you know, when I look at it from, you know, both perspectives, part three and part four, um, I actually think that Tuesday night does a better job of portraying the kind of like tortured dreamer um, that is just like feels like she is like absolutely nowhere to go in life. No one's listening to her. Like I feel like Patricia Arquette's portrayal of Kristen, you you really fall in love with that character quicker and she's more accepted by the group and she kind of like – plays the form of like almost like an alpha in that movie. Yeah. Whereas the Tuesday true. night version of Kristen is very much more of like a, you kind of look at her as like a lost loser sort of. And yeah. it's like, you, you know that like her end is, is near, you know? Yeah. And like, she really does not go out in a blaze of glory in that movie. <laughs> no, you know, right. And I feel like, yeah, you definitely make some good points, uh, going to bat for Tuesday night. And, uh, I was going to say also, this is, you know, a thing that we bring up when we discuss these movies. There's really no accounting for nostalgia because, you know, everybody has their nostalgic connections with these movies that colors their perception of them. And and it maybe elevates them more than like maybe uh, someone that came to see them like 20 years after the fact would. You know what I mean? Yep. So like we talked about Waterworld, like I never watched Waterworld until we talked about it on the podcast and Pat loves it. And I'm like, whatever, dude, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's like a good example of that. You know, I have that's no some, history that's some with early it. 90s shit right there. Oh, yeah, for you sure. Just, you can never account for people's perspectives and, and how they were introduced to certain things because time and place, it plays a big part in how you consume especially film and what's like important to you at that time. And if it's seminal to your viewing experience and how you would grow to consume movies down, down the line, who am I to say that like, you know, someone that watched dream master first and that being their, their favorite one, because that's the first one that they watched. There's, there's no accounting for that. like, you know, I can't, you, there's no arguing that like, that is, that is your personal experience. And that's, that, that says a lot of how we, how we view and consume movies specifically. Absolutely. Yeah. But I think, you know, to be honest, like that is absolutely true. But I also, I would like to be able to go to bat for Tuesday night without having to rely on that. Um, mm-hmm. 
because of, you know, like I want to be able to give as much of a, a defense to her as I can without. Yeah, because that's almost like a cop out to be like, exactly. Well, yeah, like, oh, you know, it's actually though. good <laughs> and because of my nostalgia, but it's, you're saying she's good beyond even the nostalgic. Uh, Definitely. And, yeah. and, you know, I would not say that she absolutely blows. Um, Patricia Car- Arquette away or, or anything like that. I just think that, you know, given how the majority of people feel like it's probably like a 90-10 split in favor of Patricia Arquette, I would say it's probably more like, you know, 55-45 in favor of Patricia Arquette, you know? And like, I just want to give Tuesday Night more credit because I actually think that her portrayal of the character is almost truer to what I think that character should be in the series. Um, you know, as some of the examples I gave. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. That's I, a, think that's, that's a, I think that's great. That's a good analysis. So moving along uh, to try and keep this more or less chronological, let me just say up front that I feel like this is the best reintroduction of Freddy Krueger in any of the series. We have a demon dog pissing on the ground, cracking open the earth and bringing, essentially opening the gates for Freddy to return <laughs> to wreak vengeance. And then we have that reverse animated uh, refleshing of Freddy Krueger's bones in the, in the, in the hell pit. <laughs> oh my God, dude. I, uh, that is one of the coolest scenes ever. Yeah. Period. And let alone, you know, the opening of Freddy, like the introduction of Freddy to the movie. I mean, like, holy shit, man. I would imagine, imagine an eight year old me watching that for the first time. I mean, that is excitement right there. I was like, this is fucking awesome, you know? Right. And then, of course, it's also a reintroduction to Kincaid, who we discussed, you know, previously that of the dream warriors, he was our favorite dream warrior. So it was cool to see that at least up to this point, if like, let's say we're watching this movie for the first time, we're like, oh, shit, Kincaid's back. Um uh, only to be set up for our inevitable disappointment by what <laughs> happens to him. But it's like that whole uh, in the round, like junkyard scene, the hell junkyard is so good and such a way, uh, a great way to, to open up this movie. I also love that, you know, obviously like me seeing four before three, I didn't realize you know, that that was a direct extension of his introduction. I mean, that's where they buried him in part three. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where he comes back, you know, like that's where uh, what's Dr. Gordon and uh, Mr. Mr. Thompson. Thompson, Yeah. Yeah. Like that's where they bury him. So I think that's really cool that that's how they bring him back is like right back in that same spot in the junkyard. Yeah, because up to that point, like there wasn't really a clearly established like resurrection of Freddy. You know what I mean? Right. Like, you know, it's like in the in the second one, he just kind of gradually, you know, he starts possessing Jesse. And then in the third one, he just kind of starts once again reappearing in, in the Elm Street kids dreams. So it's right. like it's a slow manifestation and he starts acquiring more and more power. But here with this one, it's like you know, the hellhound breaks him loose, essentially. Right. And like they do this in part four and then actually in part five, you know, like he comes back in the church as well, where yeah. he is killed in the in this one. Um, yeah. And then part six, they resume just him 
kind of appearing again. So I think that in part four and five, it's really cool that you actually see him resurrected from the, the spot that he was killed in the previous film. Yep. Pat? Yeah, I mean, it's fucking rules. <laughs> <laughs> the the rematerialization of it and watching like skin like slough back on and like the it goes from like the anatomy like classic anatomy skeleton to like really gooey and and you know skin being kind of put back on and shot in reverse gives it that like supernatural kind of uh a look to it yeah it fucking rules of course and then it ends with him just kind of taking his hat out of the dust and shaking it off like there's like a little <laughs> bit of humor there too yeah. yeah like you know that when they added that we're like oh, let's make this a little bit funny right do we want to litigate the our favorite deaths yeah absolutely so let's go down the list um this one is maybe the most uh maybe the hardest one that we'll do this is yeah. This is definitely the one up to this point that is laden with the most batshit deaths, and that death is scenes. a Rennie Harlan staple that I think we get with this. So you get the good and the bad with Rennie, yeah. Uh, but I think it's it's no coincidence that his Nightmare on Elm Street has the most wackadoo death sequences. That right. They, yes. This is going to be tough. Yeah, so well, let's start off by kind of like listing them. So right off the bat, we have Kincaid, who Kincaid, he goes yeah. out like a bitch. He just gets stabbed with the with the knives, and then he's done. Yeah. Okay, so tell that's what Tom Freddy sent you, right? Yeah. So that's whatever you know. And, and unfortunately, we're sad. Kincaid gets like taken out so early, and then we have Joey's death, which is next. Horny Joey gets Horny it Joey. again. <laughs> former, <laughs> former mute turned into uh, you know guy that can finally talk. Yeah, right. So he here we have voice, like, he found his dick and now he's dead. Yeah. <laughs> right. So we here we have like a real analogy for uh teen uh teen men, teen boys really uh, getting in a syrup by like, you know, trying to put their wiener in the wrong place. <laughs> so well, they say something like the a wet dream is alluded to. Uh yeah, yeah, yeah. Freddie says how's something. This, how's this for a wet dream? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, you know, so he actually he actually doesn't really like it's funny because he gets himself in in deep shit in the third one for being horny joey and That's he never I mean. learned his lesson he didn't learn his yeah, lesson this one, like this the- one he, he doesn't really you know he's just looking at a poster you know he doesn't really you know it's not how he starts jacking off or anything but after <laughs> what happens in three how are you not scared to death to get horny again like, yeah how is he not like I would be on the edge I'd be like as soon as I had like a, ha- a half mass situation going I'd be like fuck this yeah, I, dude, he's, he's got to know oh shit that poster of that chick that I'm like lusting after is gonna someday kill me and then you, he's got to know like mermaids don't live in my waterbed or whatever like it's <laughs> yeah, yeah right that's like something's not right here yeah, horny horny Joey gets his wet dream. So the big the big three from the from Dream Warriors, Kincaid, Horny Joey, and 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 then Kristen's, Kristen's next. Yeah, so Kristen, death. right? So Kristen though, but like Kristen's death is a little bit more drawn out. It's more it takes place in stages. So we have her having the dream on the beach where we 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 meet cool beach Freddy. <laughs> He's Tom Atkins <laughs> in Night of the Creeps. <laughs> yeah, we meet Summer Break. Freddie, 
<laughs> shark who's it's actually the his his progression is he's shark freddy starts with the freddy cool, shark yeah to cool beach freddy yeah and then so he like puts Kristen through the the sand where she like comes out the other end in the house into the and then makes her way into the boiler room right yep yep okay and just uh, just as a side note one thing that i find interesting about that scene is that when she first get wakes up on the beach you know when she's in like her bikini and everything um you know they do like a like a shot of the beach you know where she's looking around (sighs) maybe it's just because we know something bad's gonna happen obviously but like that beach does not look even remotely like like paradise whatsoever there's like something wrong from the second that you see what that beach looks like Oh yeah, it's like a real shitty, like polluted beach. Yeah, like something's <laughs> yeah. great. And she's like, you know, she's like realizing, oh shit, I'm in a happy place. Thanks, Alice. You know, but like, dude, that beach is bad news from the second you see it. But anyway, it's the kind of beach that if you if you were to be drinking out of a coconut, it'd probably have like a used syringe like floating around it. Like <laughs> it was, it's a Michigan beach, or, Michigan uh, Lake Beach. If I a used condom, it. there'd be a used condom floating and then in he it. Could, Freddie could push his head through it. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah, like he does. We get we get, we get the we get a uh, a reprise of the Freddy condom. So I, so I would argue that Kristen got the death that Heather Lingenkamp should have gotten as Nancy. Absolutely, in three. absolutely. Like she should have gotten the elaborate, drawn out death that she didn't get. That's I sucks. agree. One hundred percent. So yeah, go ahead. So basically, well, I was gonna say so. Doing, it, sorry. No, I was gonna say so. It ends with her basically getting thrown into the boiler. Right. Yep. So there Which we go. Is, it, the lead up, it, it's all build up at that point. That's all foreplay because the death yeah. itself is not that cool. Right. Um, so so we have the three Dream Warriors. They're done. But at this point, um, they've brought Freddy back into the world. And so now since he's killed off the, the last of the Elm Street kids, he's moving on to new, new meat. How sweet, fresh meat. He says it himself. <laughs> yep. So, okay. So, so yeah, what Kristen's we, now transferred her powers into Alice. Right. Next so, death up is uh, is Sheila. The Sheila. French kiss death. Yep. With the uh, the weird kind of like robot hand thing that comes out of the blood stain. Yep. It looks mm-hmm. real shitty. That robot learning, hand looks learning real. Learning is fun with Freddy. <laughs> but that robot hand, like uh, I, I got to say, that one kind of gets like downgraded in terms of practical effects. I also don't understand it. Like I don't don't know. understand. But what's because she's like a nerd, so the she gets the robot hand. Is that why? <laughs> I mean, I she know. also does make that like. That like weird the cockroach know, like like, uh, like the bug repellent thing that she yeah. gives to to uh, what's her fucking name um, Debbie Debbie you know I yeah. don't know if that's like sort of similar to like what I guess I don't know you know to be honest it, it doesn't make much sense no it doesn't and that's what like that's when we when we get further into this movie that's kind of like. Um, a discussion that's going to manifest more and more is how more unhinged and incoherent this movie becomes <laughs> as we progress further into it. So, so yeah, so we have Sheila's make out asthma death. There we go. That's number <laughs> yep, four. And, uh, then Rick, Rick is next. Do, his dojo death, which, you know, I'll, I'll say the scene, the scene itself is cool. The death is absolutely just completely, lazy and nothing you know yeah yeah agreed but the scene leading up to it is is fine yeah um there's some trivia there you know like uh, if you've seen the the never never sleep again documentary uh 
you know, that scene was filmed without Freddie because of a budget cut. Yeah. Oh, okay. Not, not because of, uh, you know, on purpose. They okay. literally did what they could because they didn't have Robert England available. To and it film. was supposed to be a completely different death. Yeah. Yeah. I don't what think they had a dojo karate themed death planned. I think that they pivoted into that. Okay, so I completely you know, I, I forgot. I honestly don't think I don't know why they wouldn't have. I think it yeah. fits. You know? It only makes the the training montage even fucking more confusing if you don't tie it in later. Right. So, exactly. Like, yeah. I mean, he's. It's one of his interests. Usually, Freddie's all their deaths are based on. Yeah. The, or the your, or your, your greatest fear, which right. segues perfectly into the greatest death in for me. In the franchise, which is Debbie's Roach Motel death, is my favorite fucking thing on the planet. So sick. It's in my top three. I've been thinking about this and how this is going to work, and I've got a top three going. Um, but oh, no. we, we should probably finish them. But yeah, that is the last of the deaths in the movie. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. Debbie's. So. It, is, it is definitely the gnarliest death in this movie and one of the gnarliest deaths in the series. So we agree that the Debbie is the winner of, of this movie. Absolutely. Uh, Without it. Well, no, really? No. Wow. It's, no. it's, it's between uh, – so like I said, I have a top three going. Okay. And I know I know one of them that's in the top three is not not the best one, which I, I, I really have always liked Joey's death. I okay. love I love him jumping out of the water, but I love the way that he raises his, uh, his glove in the air and like plunges it down into him and you see the blood fill in the water. Like that's pretty brutal. And I just I like that scene altogether. But that would probably be like the third of the top three. But I honestly have to say that between Sheila's death and uh, Debbie's death, it's hard for me to pick one. Um, I, I Freddie sucking Sheila's face out like is and like the way that she looks after he's done doing that, like. It's one of the most most iconic deaths in the series for me. Um, Joey's his, death loses points because it harkens back to Glenn's death in the first one. That's true. That's true for me because it's just rehashing the the Glenn death, albeit different. But I think the Glenn death is so cool that you can't rehash it because it's not going to be as cool. Yeah, I mean that Glenn the Glenn death is seriously one of the most disgusting things in like cinematic history it's (laughs) it's, like it's my it's probably like one of my favorites in the series i mean even when they get when the cop is looking at the room afterwards and you can see the blood kind of like seeping through the ceiling yeah i mean that is gruesome um it's fantastic yeah it's awesome um but yeah i mean you know like i said joey's is not going to make the top one for me but between it's between debbie and sheila for me but okay I'll, I'll, I could almost give you guys the Debbie death because it is hard to argue that that's not the best one. We have somewhat of a descending opinion, but more or less we're on the same page. We all very much kind so. Of, yeah, okay, fair enough. So let's move on then, Pat. What do you got next? Do we, for the sake of brevity, because my bad is I have a lot more bad than good. Okay. I want anyone who has any more good to just their last good that they have. So we, for the sake of moving on. Well, obviously, that the time loop, the dream loop sequence is really amazing. And that was really clever. Yep. So. Yep. Really like that. And one of them, I, this is like I, I, I tend to try to stay away from the humorous parts as like good because, I mean, it's just par for the course with like the later Freddy movies. But the part where 
<laughs> he says Kruger, and then Freddy goes, "Well, it ain't Doctor Seuss." Is like <laughs> yeah. one of the funniest fucking things like I've ever seen ever. So I just I, that's another good for me. That is an unforgettable part that is just like genius. That's a great yeah. Freddy line. Yeah, yeah, um, it's so good. I actually have. I want to rattle off a few more goods again because we, you know, we're trying to like keep this as succinct as we can, and I. It kind of alluded to this earlier when we were talking about um, the souls coming out of Freddy. But I will say I think that of all the Freddy deaths in the series, this hands down is the best and the gnarliest. Like he because up to this point, like his deaths were all like kind of like, I don't know, man, they're kind of like wimpy or. They're like they're weak. It's like there really, like isn't, there really isn't, isn't a good good Freddy death besides this one. Yeah, like I'll, he gets I'll like wished right away, now. or like a, like I said, a, a a a woman speaks you know mean to him, and he's like ah, and then he like you know implodes or whatever. Oh, you're I not going to pay attention to me anymore. All right, right, exactly. <laughs> it's it's like you know it's like projecting Freddy's uh, w- woman issues. <laughs> <laughs> But I will say that like and like the third one's okay because like he gets like the holy water sprayed on its bones and it's like the light bursts out and that's kind of sick. But like this one, this one is fucking gnarly because it's like she does like the mystical kind of spell casting thing with like, you know, saying an incantation essentially and that like exposes his weakness, but then ruptures him to like just be torn apart by the souls like his when his head gets torn like fully open and like yep. the souls get released out dude come on man that shit it's, is it's very awesome. rad yeah there's a so, museum with that that uh contraption in it you know oh, there's really with like the the freddy because when they filmed that in order to do the bodies coming out of the stomach they had mm-hmm. to have a giant freddy to do that yeah yeah so yeah. um, there's a museum somewhere. I can't I can't tell you where it is, but there's a museum somewhere with that in it. That prop. Yeah, yeah and, I, and and that's funny that you brought that up because I did wonder like how did they achieve this? Because it's clearly like they're they're it's not like robotic arms or any sort of like ar- armatures that are coming out of them. Those are people. Yep, and I was like, yep. I, I don't know how they managed to do that. So that's cool that it, they just had like a giant model Freddy that they built. <laughs> and, and then there's just naked people inside trying yeah. to get out. And one of the one of the souls is Linnea Quigley. Yes. Yes, I did read that. Well, it's one of the souls, I think, in the uh, in there's the chest. soul tunnel, the soul tunnel. Yeah. No, oh, I thought I read that she was one of the chest souls. Okay. Well, either way, that. that's sick that well, there's a cameo from Linnea Quigley there. <laughs> I love that. I know. But, um, so what I wanted to say, maybe uh, real quick to you, I really, really do love like the chapel set design. That chapel looks really rad and really creepy. So yeah. th- that whole in ending scene set up. Really it's uh, it's really it's really a perfect end setting for sure. You know? um, perfect, like final venue. <laughs> yeah, for the, like, final, for the final battle. Again, like even if like you if you're perturbed in any way with some of like the incoherence of like the movie up to this point, that final battle really is like the cherry on the top of this movie. So, yeah, it's it's a good ending. It's it's probably one of the best. 
yeah. if not the best of the series. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so that's what I got. If you guys got anything else, you can go ahead and discuss that. Otherwise, we can move on. What do you say? I mean, we'll inevitably talk about something good again in this. So yeah, I'm down to move on. It could come back around. What about you, Pat? Yeah, I mean, we can move to the bad. Okay, let's move on to the bad. You want to head it off there, Pat? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I probably have more bad than anybody, maybe. I don't know. Because I'll, you know, while I enjoy this movie, it is <laughs> heavily flawed. Um, <laughs> and I think it stems from this. There was a Writers Guild strike in 1988, and Harlan had to improvise a lot on the fly. And I think that shows. There's a lot of improv lines, a lot of actors with incomplete scripts having to improvise shit on the fly. And like we alluded to um, with uh, 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 Rick's dojo death, lots of stuff that wasn't conceptualized yet because of the writer's strike. And Rennie Harlan is at his worst and his best when he's unhinged with absolutely no reins. <laughs> so sure. him working off script can get a little dicey. And I, I think that's where this this movie struggles, because for me, pacing wise, I think it's in the back half gets nutty to the point where it's hard to follow and i disagree i I think when alice and brad beef chunk are stuck in the the time loop or whatever (laughs) like and then brad is on the operating table i love that freddie line and i love but at the end of the day it's so horribly paced and edited and and pieced together that i'm like why are we here and why what is this in relation to where we came from and where is this going um, yeah, I, you know. I was going to say, I feel like at that point in that kind of like third to final act, things do kind of fall apart a little bit. And there's definitely I have a lot of questions in regards to that. So but we'll get into that. But, yeah, I would say that there's there's incoherence that creates an issue with being able to keep up with this movie. So I don't disagree with you at all, but I do like the time. I do like the dream loop regardless. So kind of, kind of move uh, like just since we're talking about that sequence, um, actually this isn't unique to part four, um, but it's still very much like valid. I've never liked in the nightmare and Elm street movies where, you know, it falls off track in terms of like whether somebody's asleep or not. Right. You know, where the where the dream world all of a sudden, you know, Alice is driving home from the hospital to you know get her nunchucks and like all that shit. You know, take the pictures off of her mirror. You know, yeah. so she can see herself. And then all of a sudden, she's gonna jump through the mirror and save Dan from Freddie in the operating room. You know, like I, that's something that's not unique to Part Four, but I've never liked that. Where it's like, okay. Nobody's dreaming right now, but yet now you're you're facing off with Freddy in in the real world. Like, there that's just an inconsistency. It's not. Uh, it's it's never made me very comfortable, you know, in terms of like consistency. Right, and clearly, you know, we were both going to bring that up, and we've had that discussion back and forth up to this point as to how that dynamic within the story changes with each subsequent sequel. Um, 
the thing that we were talking about with the first one is I feel like the first one actually works to its credit because with that one, it's like, I think Wes Craven was intentionally trying to create this vibe of you don't like there's a blurring of the line between dream and reality at that point. So he was definitely toying with that concept of you don't really know where you're at. Even with the end, it's like the way it ends. It's like, was it all a dream? You know, we don't know. But then, like, I think that's where in the third one, it becomes, you know, definitely more pronounced where, you know, we're like, well, we don't know where the dream is. We don't know where reality is. But with this one, definitely at that point forward, it's like, what the fuck is going on? Like, okay, they're driving, but they're asleep. Or are they not asleep? Like, are they in a dream when they're doing the loop or are they not? Is this reality? But then it's funny because Pat actually kind of had, I feel like in his head canon, a good explanation for this. If you want to go into what you were saying, Pat. Well, yeah. I mean, this is something that we bring up in in every episode so far because it's part of it. It is just intrinsically like the thread that exists where you don't know if they're dreaming or not. Um, and what I, what I presupposed on the, uh, the last segment was that, you know, Freddie doesn't have his powers yet until everyone is at a fervor of fear. And he has to kind of build himself back up at the end of every, at the beginning of every movie or every time he dies in order to gain his powers back. So there's like this gray area or a middle ground of sorts where he's not at full power. So things exist in both realms and you're kind of in the dream world and in reality until he can have everyone on his playing field, which is in the dream world. But that's maybe not up to his capacity until he gains full power. But that's again, like just my own headcanon as, as to how this works. I, I really like it. It, it actually, yeah. it actually helps me kind of think, think about this in a different perspective. And like, you know, there is a red thread where it's like, you know, the first half of the movie, it's very linear, you know, people fall asleep and Freddie visits them. It's just, yep. and then, you know, that all kind of starts to unravel and fall apart towards the middle of the movie till the second half. Um, well, and then I was, I was going to say also, it's very clear and evident with Debbie, with Debbie's death. Cause Debbie is benching. She's bench pressing in her home gym. And then all of a sudden she's in the Roach motel. Right. Right. Well, she exactly. didn't fall asleep at her bench, you know, now, regardless of this theory or not, I agree with you that in the first one, there's like a certain abstractness to it that it's like, it more so seems intentional, you know, like it's like, it's more so like to create a feeling Mm -hmm. um, and like really fuck with you in the way that, I mean, the entire story was written for this purpose. So he, I think that you're right when it's like more intentional in the first one. Um, But obviously Wes Craven didn't direct all of them, you know, and like it doesn't, it is not pulled off quite as smoothly in the later, later films. Yeah. hundred percent. That's, that's like, Rennie Harlan needed that is when you need writers and that's why you need a writer room to suss out this kind of minutia of bullshit of the like fantasy minutia like a writer's room the whole aspect of it is for them to 
work out these finer details so a director can direct the vision as it is laid out and not have to figure that out. Rennie Harlan should never have been tasked with figuring that out. And because he was, because of the writer's strike, it just shows, it's just more evident in this one. It's, it's prominent in all of them, but it's more blatantly bad in this one because he's on the, he's doing this on the fly. Uh, so. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point out just what, while it's on my mind, like a specific bad about this movie that actually speaks to that, like, you know, writer's strike. Um, that's something that definitely would have been caught in the writing room um, is when, you know, Kristen first has the dream. Everybody's still alive. Nobody's dead yet. But she's talking to Rick about it at school and they walk past and you see the claw marks on the lockers. Yeah. What the that, fuck? Yeah, I mean that I, What the fuck is that? Even as a kid, even as a kid I was like <laughs> that's just some fucking contrived bullshit right there. You need like, to have a character see it. You can't have the audience see, like what the fuck are we yeah, supposed to that's, ascertain that's from really that? really bad. I hate that part. I really do. I'm glad you mentioned that cuz I did not write that down but in the moment I absolutely fucking hate that part too. Yeah, that's, that's some bullshit no, that no reason for that. That's the good and the bad with Rennie Harlan, though. That's what you get. You get shit like that where he didn't think he didn't think past. This will be cool. Like he is the kid who doesn't stop to think, but he's the coolest kid to hang out with the neighborhood because he's has all the the best fireworks. But he doesn't stop (laughs) to think like this could blow somebody's fucking hand off. It would just be cool to do. That's just (laughs) all he he doesn't think past. Like this would be cool. And that's good and bad. That's why you get. Cliffhanger. He's kind of like a stupid dog. Yeah, yeah. You just <laughs> like, you, you just gotta, like your dog just does stuff and runs over to you. It's like there could be a fucking pendulum swinging in front of you, and you're just gonna <laughs> still, yeah, you'll run right into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the good and the bad with uh, with Rennie Harlan. Um, my other, I wanted to go. Go ahead. I wanted to point out because we were discussing this when we were watching the movie together. Of course, this kept coming up. Rick is fucking irritating. The guy playing yeah, Rick, Rick is fucking Rick is awful. He's uh, oh my put, god, dude! This is where I get kicked off the podcast. Oh uh, <laughs> no! I, I put specifically Kung Fu Johnny Depp is fucking awful. What did I say? He's like uh, watered down Christian Slater or Chris, the Crystal Pepsi Christian Slater. He totally is. He totally yeah. is. He's like a he's like a like a diet Christian Slater. I mean, <laughs> I I love the character of Rick, and I I think that, what's his name, Andreas Jonas or whatever his actor's name is. I love of that guy i think <laughs> i think that character he's one of my favorite characters in the movie it's uh i don't i just i really like him like i genuinely like would want to know him like he brings me enjoyment while i'm watching it like i'm i'm not with you guys on that all right well john's on team well, rick so well, <laughs> are you are you on this then because this is one of my big bads is um uh hold on I don't want to get her name wrong. Lisa Wilcox as Alice is dog shit terrible. It's one of the worst things about this movie. Um, And there's a lot going on here. But Harlan described wanting to cast someone who was timid and vulnerable in the first half. I think he nailed that. But then they would metamorphosis in the second half into like a Sigourney Weaver Ripley type. And... (laughs) When she is strapping on for combat, I don't buy it whatsoever. Hundred percent, like I'm totally big out thumbs down. Yeah, it's, Alice it's is not tough at all. 
I think I, uh, she nails the first half, like the timid, mousy type. But they tried to recreate like a Heather Langenkamp um, archetype. And it doesn't work because when when Heather Langenkamp, uh, you know, as Nancy in the back half of the first one, I buy it. I'm all in because I think I buy into her. I just don't buy into this performance specifically as Alice. Now, let me let me challenge that because it's not that I disagree with you, but is someone snapping into Sigourney Weaver mode halfway through a film even realistic? I almost think it's more realistic that she's still kind of like this, like, you know, prissy idiot that just like isn't going to pull that off. Like, I, I, I kind of do buy it for that reason. But they pull it off with with Nancy. I don't I don't Nancy is Nancy is mentally tough okay Nancy Nancy is mentally strong in part one she really gets her shit together and like intelligently comes up with like a plan to like take on Freddy and shows absolutely no fear I will definitely give it that but I don't I mean if that's all it takes like I wouldn't say that you know Lisa Wilcox doesn't at least pull off the no fear part like towards the second half I mean she definitely she definitely is not you know exemplifying like a superwoman you know and like you don't believe for a second that she could like kick your ass or anything but I then mean I, then don't add the like strapping at strapping on combat armor you see <laughs> where she's like going to war or whatever the fuck because but that see, that's, is, that's when I lose it but that's because she's using everything that her friends gave her sure. to kind of prep her for battle so like sure those stupid things like the good luck charm or whatever I mean that's just her saying like all right you know gotta have Debbie with me for this one you know um I which got, goes got back to my- I would buy it if it was Heather Langenkamp which makes me think that it's a Lisa Wilcox problem because I just don't I just don't like her. And maybe she also is a direct result of the writer writer's guild strike because you're only as good as as what your character is written to be. So, like, maybe it's I not. All I don't fault. disagree with you enough to, like, fully go to bat for Lisa Wilcox. But I definitely, <laughs> but I definitely don't feel as strongly about this as you guys. Apparently this isn't do. like a Tuesday night situation. No, 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 this no, is no, like no, a Wednesday no. morning. <laughs> this there is when, Wednesday morning did great in the second half of this movie. <laughs> I would like to point out though that I think it's funny how the uh, the costume and makeup designers of this uh, or staff decided like the best way to make Alice look like a dweeb is just like give her a shitty haircut and a greasy part. It's just like this is clearly a hot chick, and that's that's all you got to do is just kind of like fuck with her hair, like the the greasy part, and it's like okay, she's a dweeb. She's a shy dweeb now. <laughs> I, yeah, I, th- I mean, the character of Alice is just not interesting in general. Can we all right. agree on that? Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely, hundred percent. And she's- we haven't touched upon this, but their their friendship group being like a short bus breakfast club is fucking. <laughs> <laughs> this a lot going on. Yeah, this ragtag amalgamation of like every stereotype in high school that would never fucking hang. At least in an urban high school, these motherfuckers would never hang out with each other. I'm sorry. You, de- you definitely have a point there. Um, <laughs> but, you know, at the same time, I do think that they sort of they sort of own that when they they show like Sheila and Debbie's dynamic, how like, you know, it's obvious that like 
they're touching upon the fact that Debbie like is not smart and doesn't give a shit about like her studies and like kind of relies on Sheila to like, you know, help her with trig and all that shit. Like they're not completely ignoring the fact that these characters don't really have much to do with each other. Like, it's almost like, you know, there, it is possible for somebody to have that friend. That's like a polar opposite, but you know, they just get each other, you know? So I do think that they somewhat tackle that. Yeah. It's egregious when they <laughs> it's egregious when they all meet up for like the first time because it is it is like watching um I'm trying to think of a good analogy it, here. It's like it's an like, after school special representation of like well, well that but but also like everyone gets like an entrance like a wrestler. Like it's almost like everyone's <laughs> music hits and they they come in and do like their fucking weird thing. Like Sheila comes in on the on the Vespa and like it's like her her professional wrestling music hits and she's like, I'm the nerd. Like and Rick's like, ah, I do kung fu on the side. Like yeah, and, and Debbie's Rick. like Debbie's like, I didn't study last night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Debbie's yeah. Debbie's got that energy. Brad Beef Chunk comes up with like fucking <laughs> half a brain lobotomized miss like missing chromosome. Okay. Yeah. There's a lot going on. It, yeah, way to introduce about, it. Let's so talk bad. about that. What do you think of the character of Dan? Because I, uh, I mean, I don't hate him personally. I, I mean, he's, he's not. He's not. Yeah, that's another one of those uninteresting characters. Yeah, he's just there, and it, it really doesn't not does not make much sense for him to be like one of the surviving protagonists of the film. Not he, should at all. Be, he should be one of the death scenes. hundred <laughs> percent. Obviously he is, he gets his just due in part five, but you know, like there's no reason for him to be one of the victors in that movie. I do think no, him and Alice are a good couple. There's two vapid yeah. idiots. <laughs> vapid idiots. And it's like only appropriate that they're the their vapid idiocy is the spawn of Freddy in the, in the next one. Yeah, their their relationship is worse than a nun being raped by a hundred maniacs. So that's, that's nuts. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, that's definitely a couple that goes home and watches Friends at the end of the day. For sure. Yes. Yeah. Oh they're yeah. Binge, they're binge watching Friends. I actually like Friends. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna flex. This <laughs> it's funny that you threw that out there. But that, that um, is what. That is definitely what's on the TV when when Dan yes. and Alice go to bed yes. at night. For sure. Absolutely. Or yeah, the Bachelor. Like, the Bachelor. Yeah, Paradise. Yeah, Dharma and Greg or whatever. Some Dharma fucking... and Greg. What year are you in? <laughs> the nineties. Oh, the year. Well, this is 1988, friend. So we're. <laughs> We're preferencing. Yeah, prefer- we are. I have more I, bad, but I I don't want to I don't want to uh, draw this out anymore. I'd rather move on to questionable, unless there's no, 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 more we, glaring we bads. I, you know, if you have a minute, I would be curious to know just like a few more bad that you have. Just like if you could touch on it real quick. Oh yeah, I'm going to bring up another one. Once again, we love to talk about in this series in particular how awful the parents are. Yeah, we didn't we didn't even do the bad parenting thing, which is a, a staple of these Nightmare on Elm Street movies parents right. being bad the alcoholic archetype in this is off the charts um and this was actually in my good i didn't even get to it but i, I think it's a power move for Kristen's. uh is it Kristen's dad yeah or, it's Kristen's. no no it's alice's dad alice, alice's, alice's dad, dad. for yeah. alice's dad to be drinking a, a bloody mary before work is like a power move that i didn't even know was a, a thing <laughs> that i i could do so Maybe I'll I'll add that to the repertoire before I have to like drop my daughter off at school. Um, Wait, now how did I how did I not notice this? He's drinking a Bloody Mary in the kitchen when when the uh, with like Christine his briefcase. Yeah, before he goes to wow. work. 
Yeah. To, that's just one of those things that flew over my head. Yeah. Well, we are so hyper. My my wife and I are so hyper focused on what people are drinking. My wife was like, "What is he drinking?" And it's very clearly a Bloody Mary because there's nothing that looks like a Bloody Mary. So that's um, awesome. Unless well, it was like a also, cosmopolitan in a tall glass <laughs> with celery. <laughs> well, and also we, we noticed that we had like the uh, the fake out in three that Kristen's mom gets murdered by F- Bachelor Freddy by uh, Tuxedo Freddy. But when in reality, <laughs> she she comes back again with that irritating, shrill, Andale, oh Kristen, Andale. She's back. And then she's fucking back. And then like... So the the um, the discussion that they're having there at the dinner table when, you know, Freddie's coming back and Kristen's like having a meltdown and she's trying to talk sense to her mom. And of course, her mom could clearly give a fuck. And of course, ultimately leads to her daughter's death. She's just like, oh, whatever. You just need to go to sleep you know and feeds her fucking sleeping pills un- unbeknownst we uh, need you know. to get Kristen's mom and Alice's dad together and have a real real fucking come to Jesus yeah. AA meeting with those two yeah like Dude, her mo- mom there's is a the love connection voice. there that's being un- it's not being mined really well, now that they don't have like, you know, one of the shitty kids in the way. Well, two of them because Rick's dead. They got Rick and Kristen are both gone. Hey, More time for drinking. Right. Exactly. Ba-ba-ba-ba. Come on. No, just to, just to you mentioned the dinner scene where, you know, she gives Kristen sleeping pills. One of my bads and I'll just I, we don't have to go into this too much. But when Kristen says it's his fucking banquet and I'm the last course, that is like not a good line. <laughs> Not even a good line for like 80s cheese. Like I just – I don't – I hate that line. I, I don't like it. I never ever have enjoyed that line at all. Well, I was going to say this was actually my bad. There is a lot of like real cringy zippy one-liners in this movie. Rest in hell is another bad one. Alice yeah. says yeah. that at the end of the – for, for that to be like the end of the movie line, that that's – come on. That's Weak another sauce. like writer's guild strike thing. Like Rennie Harlan was like, oh, say rest in hell. Ugh. Like, I don't know what <laughs> yeah, like, sounds like. Like a, like a spur of the moment, spontaneous, like passionate thought that just should never have actually gotten used. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, so I was going to say, I think that kind of wraps up my, my bad. How about you, John? Anything else? You got anything to top off this uh, um, shit pile? Yeah, just, just one more line that I really think is like lazily written when when uh, Kristen says, we beat you before and Freddie goes, and now you're all alone. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, Freddie yeah. can do better than that. That's not witty. That's not even cool. He sounds like a bitch when he says it. So right. sometimes yeah. less is more. Just have him. This was also in my bad. I wasn't going to because I didn't want to keep going on about this, but. The more Freddy, the worse the movie for me. Like, I feel like he needs to be talked about and not shown as much. Like, he should be on screen and he should be get, doing his fucking thing. But welcome Rennie to Harlan, Wonderland. Welcome to Wonderland, Alice. Also, not not a good month. Yeah, yeah. You're forcing him into like having to talk more, and I feel like that's to a detriment of his character. And but that's a Rennie and, Harlan and- thing. And that being said, like the the well, it ain't Dr. Seuss line making it in there is like almost a miracle um, because <laughs> that's one of the greatest lines in movie history. That's that's good. You get good Rennie, bad Rennie. Like yeah, Rennie's going to give you those. But also Rennie's – this is our discussion in Deep Blue Sea. 
Rennie thought, I'm going to remake Jaws because people want to see more shark shit. And I'm just going to, it's going to be bloated with shark stuff. And <laughs> in the original Jaws, like the shark is in the movie for like four minutes. So he was like, no, people want to see this shit. And I think he, he adapted that to this movie. People want to see more Freddy. People want to see him talking more shit. And so it doesn't yeah. always work because he's going to have to be in, in a position to say shit that sounds stupid. So that, I think that's my final bad. We can agree. Okay. Wrap, so it, let's wrap move, it up there. Let's move on <laughs> to questions and then uh, we'll, uh, we'll chuck this puppy out. Questions. Who's got questions? Well, I mean, maybe the, these are questions that I'm glad like we have John here because I, I'm not being like sarcastic. I, I genuinely don't know what what is his Freddy's Achilles heel at the end of the movie is the mirror. Like, why is his reflection uh, his undoing? Um, is there like something I'm missing here? Like she. Alice puts up like the stained piece of stained glass up to him. And that's what like, like is in well, I mean, because of it. I mean, it's part, it, it's linked to the, the nursery rhyme. So, you know, um, evil will see itself and it shall die. So she's ending the, well, she's adding a line to the nursery rhyme that, you know, is, is not really said when the girls are skipping, uh, right, you know, right. I mean, rhymes. you you find out what the rest of that nursery rhyme is, and I think they intentionally keep that part out of it. So there's like an element of surprise at the end, like what's this leading up to? How is it? How is it end? You know. Um, so I mean, yeah. I mean, I'll be honest. As as much as we've praised this final death scene, I think like you know him just seeing himself in the mirror and that ultimately killing him is like. I mean, it's kind of on par with how weak the Freddy death right. scenes tend to be. I was going to say, know? the setup sucks for sure. It's right. on par and totally in line with that. But the the final culmination of the death is what's sick. Yeah, but I mean, it's not – I don't think it goes any deeper than that. I think the reason that, you know, it's just part of that made-up nursery rhyme. You know, evil e, – once evil is exposed to what it really is, it, you know, it it negates itself and kills, kills the evil. So – I mean, no, I like that explanation. I, it was yeah. a genuine question. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's what it's that's what it's linked to. Is that? So I, uh, this is my last one. Uh, okay, go ahead. Because I only had two. Why is Freddy back? We don't why really is he back. Like, why is he back? Not like, <laughs> how did he come back? Uh, we get, we get. She has to finish the off worst, the Elm Street kids. The worst dog name in the history of dog names, Jason. Uh, Jason, the dog pisses on the, but is there an explanation as to why he's returned? Like, I know his purpose for returning, but if he's dead and he was buried in, in hollowed ground and with the blessed, like, I need an explanation as to why that was not his undoing permanently. At least if not like a little, you could have a one line that explains why. Well, I mean, I think that also goes back to developing head canon as to, if you want to get really like 
out there with like thinking about the metaphysics and the supernatural aspect of this movie. So Freddy is a demon. So conceptually, there's this idea that when he is vanquished, you know, in what is considered not only like the actual human real realm, but also within this like in between interstitial dream space that he ultimately is like retired to a a place even beyond all of this. So something that like we can't even comprehend some sort of like demon purgatory that goes way beyond our, our comprehension. And let's say during that time, he is just like rebuilding his powers and he's able, it's kind of like, okay, Think this, about is a, this is the most piss poor explanation I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> okay, so Merle Allen, aka John Caution, he wants to interject. Go ahead, interject. <laughs> I thought I saw this raising <laughs> a hand feature in this. That's good. No, that's, that's a good. good. Move. We should have more order in the we court. Should, I, yes, I love it. Right. I just wanted to try it out and see what happened. Um, no, no, no. Come, come in. You've got the um, talking stick. You're you're on some some very intelligent shit. I'm not being sarcastic, but my only explanation. To, to Pat's genuine question is that the horror genre in general is basically equivalent to like, you know, when you, you get in an argument with your significant other and like no matter how much logic you bring into it, they just absolutely will not let you win. Yeah, That is the stubbornness of the horror genre. Look at the Halloween franchise. Like there is literally no reason for there to be 40 Halloween films. He <laughs> no, was fucking dead after the what the second one, maybe first one even. And it's no, like no. Freddie coming back. Like I can't defend it. I won't defend it. It's just bullshit. I'm glad I'm glad he's back. But even yeah. something as, as simple as like the junkyard, like a, a bulldozer was going through the junkyard and disturbed his remains and it gave yeah, him the, yeah. the door he needed. That's all I'm saying is this, yeah. this is something that could have been a very small uh, technicality as to I'm glad he's back. I would have preferred instead of a, the dog pissing to open the ground open which is fucking tight. My, my way of bringing him back is not as cool. So I mean, well, I actually maybe. do have one more thing to say. I'm sorry. Do, do you mind? No, no, no. Um, go ahead. The whole nightmare on Elm street. Cause I just thought of this. I never thought of this before, but the whole nightmare on Elm street franchise is based upon this idea that fear is what keeps Freddie alive. Right. Um, Joey has a line in the movie where he says, you know, did you ever think that if you, if you keep dreaming him up, you might stir him up again. You know, um, I kind of think that's kind of how they tie in this concept to the movie. It's like um, Kincaid dreams about him. Joey dreams about him. Kristen gets that all started again with her dream about him. And that's kind of like how they bring him back. It's like, well, we don't fucking care if he was killed in part three. Like these kids are still afraid. This Freddie is coming back because the fear is still there. No, that's the actual answer. Not that I knew that, but what I was alluding to earlier where he doesn't have the power necessary because people aren't thinking about him, people don't fear him, is yeah. the reason why he goes away forever until people yeah. start talking about him. And it's like one of those uh, you know, urban legends that you have to start talking about the urban legend, but if there's no right. one left to talk about the urban legend, it has to proliferate through a different generation. But right. what you're saying is, is, is actually right. Like, yeah. Because the Dream Warriors survived the third film, it's the door he needs to 
come back in the fourth because there's still people that fear him. That is the it's great kind answer. of ironic to the, in order to, for Freddie to be gone, he needs to win. <laughs> like he needs yeah. to kill everybody. Yeah, in order ultimately, to it, his, the the means to his end is his own demise because then there would be no one left to uh, fear him. So right. It's a, it's kind of like a paradox that keeps the evil alive forever. Yep, but with urban legends, that's what's cool about urban legends. Urban legend that is told, you know, three generations ago can still be told uh, because it's a word of mouth thing and it's handed down by generations. There's like an intelligence to this that completely negates how dumb I made it sound a few minutes ago when I was just like, oh, it's just bullshit, you know. Like, no, but I'm glad we – this is why we do questionable because sometimes through a roundtable discussion, you actually get to where you need to go. Yeah, and sometimes these don't have answers, but I'm glad we were talking about it. Yeah. I love it. Well, fan, bravo. Um, you completely, yeah, sidelined my super like uh, <laughs> fucking stupid like – Adam's over here like, well, technically according to Kafka – <laughs> Yeah, my extra dim- dimensional explanation as to how Freddie influences reality in like his <laughs> his I astral world. I definitely was enthralled by it, and you know when I used the raise hand feature, I was still thinking like, okay, he's still going to finish what he's saying. Nah. But instead, you were like, no, we got a hand raised here. Go, go for it. Yeah, don't like, worry like about the, my like the Robert Shea teacher that he is. <laughs> um, so. I had a question as far as um, how this would play out if this was in a real neighborhood. There is no fucking way in a neighborhood that is is white, affluent, like suburbia. Like, because, again, in theory, this is supposed to take place in Ohio. We know at this point there's no fucking way this is in Ohio. It's been firmly established. This is in California. They're not even trying anymore. They're not even trying anymore. But (laughs) you know how they return to the Thompson house, the Elm Street house? There is no way anybody in that neighborhood would have let that fly for that long. They would have been like, that piece of shit's getting torn down and we're putting condos there. But it's still there. (laughs) You know? Right? It's like, and it's like really as deserted as it gets, you know? And like, you don't even, you don't even visit the the Thompson house in part three, the entire movie aside from the scene in the bar takes place in that hospital. Yeah. Um, which is actually, actually really cool about it. Um, but yeah, man, I agree that that house it's, is like as fucked up as it's ever looked in that in part four. <laughs> I yeah. think it speaks to the whole, the, the theme of urban legends and how it plays out in these movies. There's always the spooky house on the block that has like a story behind it. Or like that's the burnt out house where like a whole family died or whatever. Sure. <laughs> and for whatever reason, uh, remains because, you know, it for it, it's just not torn down and like the Dahmer apartments just torn down and turned into like a, an empty lot forever. Uh, but yeah, you're you're right in practical terms of every serial killer that's ever existed. Even the Gacy house was torn down and they built another house on top of it and changed yeah. the address but that that doesn't <laughs> you're still living on a graveyard right I mean, yeah, how yeah. fucked up would it be if they didn't though that's i mean actually that's in westchester illinois that's like 40 minutes from me yeah um, it needs to be 
They changed the address and it actually recently sold for nearly a million dollars. It was like $750,000. So it's in an affluent uh, neighborhood. So uh, yeah, it's still very strange because that crawl space was the breeding ground of 30 bodies. So yeah, I mean, yeah. Can you you imagine living in the house above it and like being comfortable with that? Yeah. Okay. You tore it down, but then you just (laughs) built a residence on top of it. And you change the address. Like as if the number changing the numbers does anything. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I might be okay with it as long as it was not the same house. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I would buy it in, in a heartbeat, but I'm a freak ass bitch. So. Right. That's what I'm saying. We're talking, you know, amongst this, uh, you know, present company. Yeah. Every, everybody here would be like, oh, hell yeah. Sell me the house. But like people that don't have like some shit wrong with their brain, they'd be like, no fucking way. I don't want imagine I could have like John Wayne Gacy's rumpus room as like my masturbatory den. Like that would be <laughs> or if they hadn't. Torn down the the Dahmer apartments. I I could have his skull altar as like my, yeah. but that was his supposed to be his masturbatory uh, altar. So. That'd be rip- great. I would definitely record a demo in like the gate in like the Ed Gein house for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah they, yeah, they real- tore that one down too. What's wrong with people? It would, I think if you if you recorded something in that basement, like it'd be like instantly a good Doom album. Like no matter what it sounded like. Yeah, no, I think it's it's, it's it's perfect perfect recording room material. <laughs> the, the echoey expanse of the Ed Gein house. Yes. Um, is this a, is this a good stopping point, or uh, do we have more gonna, questions? Well, I was gonna I was gonna mediate by asking if either of you had any more questions because I think I'm pretty tapped out on the questions. Uh, I don't think I have any questions about it. Here's a question that I'll pose as a last one. I just thought of it. If this, how do you think Rennie Harlan's career goes if this is an abject failure? Does he do cliffhanger? Does he do, you know, does he go on to have a career? Because this is so early on in his career that I feel like this could have been a death nail or a death sentence if he does not at least financially do well. I I 100% say that this is what pivoted rennie harlan's career from him being some like insane disheveled nearly homeless finnish man <laughs> living on skid row of, of Into, Los Angeles. Uh, an insanely ho- disheveled homeless man married to a 15 year old that's how he pivots he pivots Mil- out of it. millionaire yes exactly so <laughs> I, I he's a millionaire yeah but he's a millionaire yeah he's like a what was that movie was like nick nolte like down and out in beverly hills or something mm-hmm. where it's like He's the homeless guy that somehow becomes like wealthy, like yeah, comes adopted that's by like the Rennie the- Harlan story. <laughs> that's, that was exactly what that down and out in Beverly Hills was the Rennie Harlan story before Rennie Harlan came here. <laughs> Let's, uh, you know, I'll, I'll pose a question that's not really questionable about the movie, but like, how do we how do we explain this being the highest grossing of the of the series so far? I mean, like, what exactly was the hype coming from to like make this one? so do so well when it came out i mean it's part four right part three was cool but i mean like i'm just i'm just kind of curious what you guys think if if we had to go back to 1988 like why did this movie do so well i think my i would my theory would be that films do well when piggybacked off of 
better projects. And I think three was the revitalization of the of the franchise with bringing back Heather Langenkamp to reprise her role and, and all that. And that created enough buzz to where people were all in again. Um, and anything that would have come after three had a built in contingency of people willing to go and, and see it regardless of, of how good or bad it was. But I think it was good enough that it still had word of mouth to get butts in the seats. Even after it came out, that would just be my theory. I don't know. Yeah, that's good. I, yeah, I honestly just, would have accepted anything. Just right place at the right time. You know, this was like where we're kind of like on the almost downward arc of like 80s horror slasher, big baddie type stuff, you know, being relevant. So it was just like, this is kind of like, I feel like the last gasp of that stuff. This was yeah. all your minds. And I'll just use this as a, as a final resting point. But I just looked up 1988 horror movies. Did you know it, guys? Know that Halloween Four came out the same year? Yeah, I kind of <laughs> really? figured it, w- it would have. You got Halloween uh, Four and Nightmare on Elm Street Four the same year. Yeah, nice. Wow, the I like Return Halloween. of the Return of Michael Myers is really fucking good. Like, yeah, it's definitely in terms of once again when we get into that, you know, that fulcrum point of like long-standing franchises. That was one of the stronger ones in retrospect. Now, is yes. Return Part 4 or Part 5? Because I thought Part 4 was Revenge and then Part 5 is Return. Is that not right? Part 4 is Return of Michael Myers. Halloween 5 is um, the Revenge. Re- revenge. Gotcha. And then Halloween 6 is the Curse. The curse. Of Michael Myers. Yeah, right. <laughs> yes. Just never yes. called Part 6, right? Um, gotcha. Yep. 4 is good. I like – I remember watching – I remember renting 4 as a kid. It was good. It's excellent. Yeah. It's the second Daniel Har- Danielle Harris uh, – or, or and the first Danielle first, Harris movie. First, yeah. 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 And I would say of the Halloween series, because Pat and I, we our second episode was discussing Halloween three because it's like actually like legit one of my favorite horror movies. It's and sick, I, dude. I feel like Halloween three and four of the series have the most Halloween vibes in terms of like putting you in a, a headspace of like that autumnal Midwest Halloween kind of atmosphere. Yeah. Part four is really like, that's a, if you don't understand the Halloween franchise, you'd be like, well, of course part four sucks, but no, no, it's not good. The case. It's, yeah. It's a serviceable sequel for sure. Yep. I agree. Cool. Well, I would just like to thank John so much for, uh, coming on here talking movies and uh an open invitation uh if you would like to come back and discuss uh, a movie in season three or down the line our midnight flicks doors are open to you always thank you i had a blast this is like a dream come true to be able to talk about this movie with two other obviously like unwell human beings (laughs) so so, yeah Um, I'm, i'm into it thank you so much
Why don't you reach out and cut someone? No! Okay, Adam. So let's rank uh, the movies up to this point. I actually think we will have the same exact ranking. Maybe we don't. I'm going to go with the first one, the third one, Dream Warriors, the fourth one, Dream Master, the second one, Freddy's Revenge, in that order so far. Yeah, I will agree. I mean, I could at this point because I've, I've dove much deeper into the second one. Really, I could possibly swap the last two, but same here. I actually just swapped them. I had one, three, two, four. And then yeah. I actually, per our discussion, liked this movie more than I than I had thought previously. So I swapped four ahead of two. Yeah. I, I think we're in agreement then. Ding, ding, ding. One, winner, three, winner. four, two. Winner, winner. Chicken dinner. Chicken dinner. Guy Fieri, right. uh, our Lord and Savior. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, I can, well, do, it, hey, you can do it, whatever. Well, I was going to say, so before we do wrap it up, so next week, next episode, of course, for those of you who are not following the chronology, we're going to be going into the last of what is considered the canon uh, of the series five and six. We're going to tackle those two. Yeah. So next week we'll be doing five, the dream child um, and six. uh, Freddy's Freddy's dead. Final nightmare. Awesome. See you then. This has been another deep dive into midnight movie madness. Big thanks to Charlotte Blythe for our intro music and also once again big thanks to John Caution for sitting in on the podcast and uh, adding ample insight into Nightmare on Elm Street 4. Our outro music coincidentally enough to uh, this episode is provided by Weekend Nachos and yeah so we're going to again discuss 5 and 6 of the Nightmare on Elm Street series next week so we'll see you next time and